Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Sean Chapman. I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime this week on the show. It is part two of our special bonus season, season 2.5. Uh, what did we call it? Kimetsu no Ufo Table, Ufo Table no Yaiba, Blade of Ufo Table, uh, Ufo Table Slayer, Demon Ufo Table, whatever you want to call it. Um, this is our special re-airing of old Weekly Stuff uh, episodes where we discussed the anime Kimetsu no Yaiba. The last episode we looked at season one. In this episode, we are looking at the movie Mugen Train. Indeed. So this is the, obviously, film of the second, uh, well, it's not the second arc, but the, the second major thing they adapted for the anime. The film that became the highest grossing film in Japanese history. And for both of us, Sean, lots of memories tied up in this, because it was the first film either of us saw in a theater after the pandemic shut down the world for a year. We originally had quite a bit of talk about that in this episode. I've edited that out because it is not really relevant anymore, but it is something to go back and like, oh, right, that was like, that was a magical day. Back in theaters, we were vaccinated, and we thought that was it. That wasn't it. Yes, yeah, I have uh, yeah very clear memories of seeing this movie in the movie theater, both for those reasons um, and the kind of surrealism around that, but then also how fucking good that movie was. I just like very clearly remember just sitting in my car for like 10 minutes after the movie in the parking lot because uh, I went to go see it on my own and just being like, oh, my God, that movie was so good. Um, I think yep. I just said that over and over to myself in my car uh, after the movie. <laughs> I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, that's a good movie. So, yes, this is definitely a uh, very enthusiastic episode of the podcast, but, you know, I am glad this is coming out with season two of Japanimation Station because I, we reference Mugen Train all the fuck over that season mm -hmm. and uh, for good reason because it is one of the other kind of pillars of UFO Table's dominance. And so it is good that it is out here again on Japanimation Station. Uh, next week, come back, we will be talking all about season two, which includes the Mugen Train arc that they recut into TV form, but mostly is about the Entertainment District arc, uh, all leading up to Swordsmith Village on April 9th. Yes, so go ahead and enjoy Mugen Train.
Okay, we are talking about Demon Slayer, the movie, Mugen Train. Please, Jonathan, Demon Slayer, colon, Kimetsu no Yaiba, the movie, colon, Mugen Train. Let's get the proper title in there. Yes. So to back up, um, obviously, this is the sequel to the TV show. This is just the next part of the story. Um, And we talked about the TV show last week. We both love it. It's great. Um, But yeah, the the movie, do you want to give your quick spoiler-free thoughts? And then we'll tell people when we'll turn the spoiler tap on. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, yeah, just up front for people listening to the podcast, if you are interested in seeing the movie, like, you do definitely need to watch the first season, 26 episodes, uh, to... I mean, I think you would be able to enjoy the movie just, like, purely on its own merits because it is just so good. But it definitely is not going to introduce you to the characters or anything like that. So people should watch that first season, which is good because it's like you, you're, it's not like a chore of, oh, I have to watch this. It's, hey, go watch like one of the best seasons of anime in years before you watch one of the best animated films in years. Um, but people should know that going in that this is not a spinoff or something. It is you should watch season one before you watch this. Uh, and yeah, this is, I was completely floored by how good this movie is. And I went in with very high expectations because I, you know, I consume quite a bit of Japanese media. Um, I watch like Japanese streamers and stuff like that. Um, and like, listen to like radio shows, which are basically just podcasts, but they still just call them radio shows. Um, and so like anyone who's been listening to any of that kind of like Japanese media for the past year or so now, um, or like past six months, knows that like the gravitational pull of this movie is like inescapable in Japan everywhere everybody everywhere in every sphere of Japanese media I've touched like talks about this movie in some way and so last week on the podcast I said like I don't think that this movie is just the biggest movie in Japan because everyone's so in love with Kimetsu no Yaiba that's one part of it but I also like I have a pretty good sense I think this movie is fucking great too and so I went in with really high expectations about this movie. And I also went in with, like, pretty strong suspicions about, like, what happens at the end um, that were, like, proved correctly. Uh, and so even, like, knowing all that and having high expectations, my expectations were still blown out of the water. Like, it was still a lot better than I expected. Like, I think it is an incredible film on basically every single level from animation. The performances are just, like, incredible. Like, I don't know how Hannah Inetsuki does even better as Sandro in this movie than he did in the TV yep. show because it's already, like, among the best, like, lead performances in a show like this I've ever seen, and he still, like, kills it in this movie so hard. Um, the direction, but, like, the storytelling and the care and thought that went into what is, like, the main theme that we're communicating through this, the story of this movie. How do we do that in a way that's compelling and interesting and surprising and exciting? Because it is really, there's a big pivot that happens basically at the third act of the movie in a the, in both in terms of a plot sense, but in a thematic sense where you think that you're on a fairly kind of straightforward thematic direction with what is a fairly sort of tried and true dream based enemy story theme stuff that we'll talk about when we talk about the movie. And then it pivots in the third act to make that theme much more like personal and deep and like like very human like deep on this like human level that it hits you like kind of at your core and it's saying something very fundamental about life and mortality and what it means to be a person in a way that's not unique for the genre it's a very common kind of theme for the genre but much like the spider arc at the end of the first season of Kimetsu no Yaiba which takes the themes around family that are common for shonen stuff but does it in such a spectacular way that it makes you really like think about and care about and feel what those themes mean I think this does the exact same thing uh, around like themes about mortality and what it means to struggle and to be a human and to live um, like th- a very common thematic work for this kind of genre that I don't think I've ever seen done as exceptionally well as this movie does it. 
Uh, and yeah, I was like basically bawling in the movie theater at the end of this movie because it is it's so touching and so powerful. Um, yeah. Well, let me tell you my thoughts on it. I went to see the movie. I walked out of the theater. I bought another ticket for an hour later. I went and got a sandwich, and then I went back and watched the movie a second time. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't like it. I, I just don't <laughs> think it worked. I think the animation is really subpar. No, um, this movie's great. There were there, there are compounding circumstances to why I saw it twice. So let me tell the I saw the movie twice story. Uh, the number one is it's a really good movie, and I wanted to watch it again before yeah. doing the podcast. The number two was I did not sleep basically the night before. I had really a lot of trouble getting to sleep for some reason. I think I was excited to be able to go to a movie again. Uh, And I nodded off a little bit in the movie the first time. Not out of anything wrong with the movie. It was purely like, I was like unusually groggy. I did not feel, like when I got home, I felt bad. Like I think I was just in a weird place, feeling weird. Um, So I also like, I just missed a couple of moments in one of the big fights in the middle of the movie and I was kicking myself. And uh, so I decided I needed to see it again, fully fully aware and I was, and it was great. Uh, Also like the presentation in the first screening was not perfect and it was not perfect in the second screening either because american movie theaters ha 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 um but um it was better so yeah i wound up seeing it twice also i was just so happy to be in a movie theater again i was just like i'm gonna make a day out of this i cleared my whole day i was in another town i just decided to do it so yeah so i watched the movie twice even better the second honestly like it was actually i was really happy i went to see it a second time because just because i actually knew nothing i was actually very surprised by the last half of this movie sean because i did not expect the things to happen to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like watching it, knowing where it was going and just watching it in a very analytical mindset that second time, which slipped a couple of times when the animation goes crazy. And then I'm just, you know, jaw agape leaning forward in my seat. Um, this, I made the comparison on Twitter. Well, first I said, I think this is just flat out one of the best and most like teachably great pop blockbusters in recent memory uh and i'm not using the term pop blockbuster to put it down i think that's it's the kind of thing it is obviously it's popular and it is very much a blockbuster it's the highest grossing movie in its nation's history um broke a 20 year old record you know um and it's breaking records in the united states as well so like it is a big pop blockbuster and it is teachably great. And the one that immediately comes to mind for recent teachably great pop blockbusters is Mad Max Fury Road. I don't think this movie is like quite on that level, but I do think it is similarly adept at using three act structure so fucking perfectly that it becomes a weapon against the audience. Like it will, it will extract those tears from you, whether you want to or not, because it is so good at the basics of structure and planting and payoff and all the things that go into building a good narrative. And that is so amazing for something that, you know, if this very easily could have been just the next six episodes of the TV show, strung together, put into a movie theater, successful because Kimetsu is successful, and we would all still enjoy it, right? You know? But they made a movie. And that's what's so amazing. It's like, this is a capital M movie. This is a film. This is a, yes, you have to know the previous steps of the story, but the story told here is its own two-hour story with its own big ideas and its own movements and... That, I think, is... That's the secret ingredient that has pushed this to a level of success that, you know, just is unprecedented. Um, It's because it's that good. 
and yeah. it really is that good. Yeah, because you only get to like the level of the box office it has in Japan if people are going back and seeing it a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth time. You know, like you're going and you're seeing it with every one of your friends. Um, you're like evangelizing the movie because it is that thing where while you should definitely watch the first season to get the full impact of what the movie is with the characters, like I think that this would be a, like a classically good movie for the like my friend is way into this thing. I haven't actually watched it. But they want to go see the movie. I'll just go try to tag along yeah. with them. Like, I think if you're in that mindset and don't care and know that you're going to miss some of the character interest stuff and don't care and just let the movie take you away, I think in that context, you would still love this movie um, because it's that. And it would then make you believe the movie theater and be like, I guess I got to go watch that fucking TV show now because holy shit, that was good. I agree. Like, if I, if, if you have a friend who like likes anime and they haven't seen Demon Slayer and you're going to see the movie and you wanted to invite them along, just tell them like, they slay demons. Um, you know, Tanjiro, his 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 sister's a little demon girl, and he keeps her in a box. Uh, you're good to go. Like they're on a train because there's a demon on the train, and then actually the movie will fill in a lot yeah. for you from there, right? Um, and part of that is they chose to build this movie around the character of Rengoku, and that character is introduced mildly in the TV show, but this is his thing, like. Yes. Um, and because of that, this movie has a spine to carry itself on that makes it this great standalone thing that will also mean everything going forward in the series is going to be better for this movie. Cause this is also this weird novel concept and I can't believe it's so novel for anime, but like it's the movie is just the next stage of the story. It's not a side story. It's not a new thing. It's not filler. It's not something the author came in and wrote as like a fun side plot thing. It's just the next like two volumes of the manga as a movie, and then they're going to pick up from there. And I want more of that, please. That's really a good way to do this. Yeah, because my version, Jonathan, of you going and turning around and just going right back into the theater is I went home and I just read this section in the manga because I had caught up to that um, anyways. And uh, like that's, I think, one of the things I'm most impressed by is like the canniness of this choice to do this as a movie um, because... I think it's like it's clearly a creative decision first because so it was something that we know the movie was greenlit about halfway through the this first season airing because they saw okay this is really popular this is popular enough that we should um, start like we're going to obviously have to do more of this let's start thinking about what we're going to do and so then if you read the next section of the manga like what this adapts isn't even two volumes it's one and a half volume like it is right. it is purely a two volume story in the sense of. You know, it's very clear to me to see, like, what the first episode of the second season is going to be. Because the second half of... So it's volume 7, and then the first half of volume 8. The second half of volume 8 deals with basically the fallout of this movie and kind of characters recovering and stuff like that. Um, and that's not stuff that they do in the movie, because I think they pick the perfect spot to end it. Um, and they create a scene at the beginning of the movie to create, like, a circular element for it to have this clear endpoint. Um but they picked a very tight amount of manga to adapt into what is like roundly basically almost exactly a two hour long movie. Um, and it was smart because I think this material is way too heavy to be the like first half of the next season or like the first half of the first core of the next season. It would be because you'd have the climax of this movie and all the crazy shit that happens to the climax of this movie would happen at like episode four or five of the next season of anime. And that would be so inappropriate. It would be so hard to do that. Um, and so they saw that and I think they made the very smart choice of, well, we can't really cut the first season short. 
it would be it would ruin the first season to try to like just put a bunch of episodes in there to build it out to 26 so you'd have like the training arc at the end of season one be the end of or the beginning of season two like you'd have to kind of tank the second half of season one to do that so looking at that and saying well this is such a tight story let's just do it as a movie they do it better like this is i think the the first season of the tv show i think it's kind of trade-offs on whether on what is better in the manga versus what's better in the anime i think this is just a roundly better version of the story partially because the structure like enhances a lot of the thematic material the stuff in the manga is good but i think the movie like finds the heart of that story and is able to expose it better because it's a focused one singular thing rather than a bunch of chapters in a serialized story format um and it's just like i think it's like the perfect creative choice for how to tackle this material because when you read the manga you like see it's like yes this was so smart to not just try to stuff this into the next season to do this as a movie and then you open the next season with the fallout from the movie which catches people up and then you go on to the next story arc um and move on from there uh i think it's like just such a smart fucking choice yeah yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant yeah so anyway uh, spoilers for Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, mm-hmm. the movie Mugen Train, in three, two, one. Is Rengoku the new best character in this thing, Sean? I remember, again, <laughs> go back, listen to the last week's episode where I talk about, I'm pretty sure, like, everybody who's come out of this movie fucking loves this Rengoku guy. I'm pretty sure... It's going to be pretty good. When I said that, I basically knew that he was going to die. I didn't know for sure, but there had been enough, like, the, some of the ways that people talked about the character, and then also the song Homura by Lisa, which plays over the end credits, and is the melody of that is his main theme. Um, like, if you list the lyrics of that song, I was He's like, dead. I'm yeah. pretty sure this dude's going to die. Like, this is a that's a great song. Um, I, I, I've listened to that song a bunch because I just like Lisa. Um just like generally speaking as a musical performer so um but yes so like i kind of went in knowing more or less that rengoku's probably going to die but i didn't know how or like in what context or who was going to kill him so i was still very surprised by like there being this other demon at the end of the movie i had no idea that was going to happen i assumed that he would somehow sacrifice himself to kill enmu the main the dream demon um but yes yeah rengoku holy shit yeah, there's a reason yeah. why everyone comes out of this movie loving that character to death. Uh, because it is his movie, and he owns it, and he's amazing, and he has, like, one of the most affecting character deaths I've seen in any piece of media for fucking years. Like, forever. It's, oh, like, incredible. Un- unreal. I So I did not know. And I, I knew Rengoku was a big deal in this movie because he's in every single piece of art associated with this movie, right? Yeah. And, and as you say, a lot of people talk about it. Um, but I didn't, I assumed he was a big ongoing thing. I totally assumed that he was just going to be like, I, cause I, I guess now it's like, okay, the Hashira are not invincible. Like that's part of the point of this movie, right? Is that like the Hashira can die. Um, and, and so I just assumed he would be a big ongoing thing in the series. So I had no conception that this is where this movie was going until it went there. Um, but yeah, he is an amazing character. And like very clearly, I have to imagine, I, I have not read this set stretch of the manga as you have, Sean, but I have to imagine the key reason to do this as a movie is seeing Ren Goku as a character and saying his whole arc is basically contained in these chapters and this is worthy of a movie, right? Like yeah. Because that is the thing that changes this from like... Because you could do actually several of the arcs they've already done as a movie if you wanted to. 
but there wouldn't be that same thing to like tie it together and deliver that punch. Rengoku is the punch. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, like it would be really, really bizarre to get to episode four of season two and have it end with his death. Um, like yes. it would just would be such a <laughs> bad way to pace out a season of television. Um, whereas it is the perfect way to structure a movie. Um, that yes, I have to imagine that that is what they looked at and they saw he's here for like at the very tail end of some of that the Hashira meeting stuff, and he like makes an impression because. Gotoge Sensei very specifically gives him more lines than most of the other Hashira. Um, but like this, but then it's like kind of set him up to be like, okay, you know who he is a little bit. He's got this like very like over excessively passionate quality to him that is like funny and a little bit disturbing uh, in that section where he's so kind of gung ho about killing Tanjiro and Nezuko when he thinks that they've broken the rules and all that shit. Um, and then having his whole story then contained here in a uh, volume and a half of manga. Uh, yeah, it's the right, it was 100% the right choice. And I have to say, uh, Satoshi Hino, who's the voice actor who plays Rengoku, the work he does to make that whole character just in this one movie um, and contain like the multitudes of who he is, um, that's one of the things that I think enhances the movie over how the manga reads is like, in the manga, I think it struggles a little bit to make you like fully love the character in that stretch of time. Whereas having an actor be able to embody the character, um, like Satoshi Hino, his performance as Rengoku just makes you love him almost from like minute one, where they he, they have the joke of him saying umai with every umai, single umai, yeah, delicious umai, I every single bite he takes, um, which <laughs> is a joke. Is how he's introduced in the manga. It plays a lot harder in the anime, where you just see it. Every single bite he takes, he says it. Uh, it's yeah, it's a great gag to introduce who he is. I I thought it was funny. The it was really crazy. The first time I watched the movie, I was like, "That's really funny." The second time, I was like howling with laughter. I found it like it, it gets funnier the more you watch it. But yeah, no, I, it's an amazing performance. Going from that to what he's doing in his final moments in the movie, I mean, it is unfucking real and i think that combined with the character design and the animation and everything i oh my god this is a show that is like overflowing with great characters at this point and we're still pretty early in the story and he is one of the 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 clear mvps you know it's it's incredible um and and this movie is like all gold because you've got the the main core cast that we love plus Ren Goku and then these two really compelling villains. Um, so it is just every moment you're on screen, you're watching characters who you are very invested in, um, which is awesome. You know? Yeah. No. It's yes. It is. It is all the stuff you. I mean, it's it's so a shonen show or a series like so lives and dies by its characters, and I think that's like one of the things that you know that Kimetsu has like nailed it. And that, like, it is what it needs to be by how much affection you have for the characters, especially, like, getting to see new animated material. Because for me, again, I watched the show in 2019. So for these actors, this is, like, the first new material I've seen them do as the characters in, like, two or three years. Um, so it's, like, it was, like, getting new stuff with them and be like, oh, right, yes. Like, th all these characters are so vibrant and the actors are all so good um, and the writing is so sharp uh, that... It is, as you say, it's overflowing. Every single character they introduce um, just pops so immediately and so effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how do we want to break this movie down? It is, as you say, sort of it, it 
it's set on the train, but it does this sort of dream story conceit, which means it has more locations than just the train. Um, but how do we how do we want to break this sucker down? Because God, what a what a rich fucking movie this is. Yeah, I guess like kind of where I want to start is with that basic premise, which is something in I mean, I mean it's something that's in the trailers, so you know that like you're coming in and you have this villain Enmu, who's the main villain for that first stretch of the movie, who was the bad guy set up at the end of the the, the TV show. Um, and so you know that he does something with dreams. Um, you know that, especially because his name in Japanese is just like bad dream, basically, is what his, his, the concept <laughs> of his name is. Um, and so that is a very like tried and true setup um, that you've seen, in, and not just in anime, but like in like American media as well. Like, I don't think there's any long running cartoon that has like some kind of villain type setup at its core structure that does not do the here's the villain who can like make people go to sleep or invade their dreams or whatever and you use that as a way to have like the characters face their like deep hidden desires and like over like re-encounter and reconfront their trauma like there's like five billion batman comics and cartoon episodes and shit that do this exact plot right it's a very tried and true structure buffy does it yeah. doctor who does it everyone does it yes yeah. um and so like and so I went in expecting that that's basically what the movie is as it deals with that and it does like what the core theme of that kind of story is is it's always boils down to in some way um that like reality has value because it is real right and the main characters have faced with the choice of do you accept the dream world or escape into the dream world or do you choose to fight for what is real and try to escape into the real world because reality is inherently valuable like can batman make the choice for himself to go back to the real world where his parents are dead and leave this dream world where his parents are alive because the real world has value on its own to escape into the dream is a bad idea right that's the core thing all the stories do to some extent and this movie does it and i think when i was about like over about halfway through the movie when it was getting to the point where Enmu is clearly going to be defeated and i had a hard time gauging because the movie's so good it was that like, I can't tell how far are we into the movie. I knew knew the movie was two hours long, almost on the dot. I was like, I can't tell. Have I been here for an hour? Have I been here for almost two hours? Like, how far into the movie am I? I've just been so swept up in it. And I remember distinctly having this thought of like, well, I, man, are we really going to be able to have a whole pod? Like, I've enjoyed this movie. But can we do a whole podcast that's just that theme about it's not fleeing into your dreams? Like, I feel like you do that a million times. And then when you go to the third act and they introduce Akaza, the second villain of the movie, the one who kills um, Nengoku, then it makes such a powerful and what I felt was like such a potent thematic pivot to it's not really about the dream thing. It's about being human, right? It's about like it's about limits. It's about like this is one of the reasons why it's stupid that they didn't translate the fucking title because it's called Mugen Train for a reason. It's about like finite time in mortality is important and it's what makes you human and to be infinite like the demons is wrong and is like it it drives you to make the wrong choices to be the wrong thing to embody the wrong thing in order to like become this infinite creature um and it's about like living with that mortality even when it is painful and that's such a much more powerful interesting pivot um that that is really what the movie is about, that that was the thing that when I was watching the movie, and I know, Jonathan, you have this experience with media as well, that I feel like I have moments when I watch some media now as a teacher that I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I I wish that this was a movie that I could just bring into the classroom and just show all my students because 
it is such a powerful thematic point that is made so cleverly through such a slick pivot point that you don't even think about it when it happens, but just through the sheer juxtaposition of these two villains and what is happening in those two pieces of the story is making such a powerful fundamental statement that makes all the stuff that came before it so much more compelling to me. And that to me is like the magic trick of this movie is how it is developing its themes and how it pivots into this like deeper kind of exploration of what it really wants to talk about. I agree 100%. And I had a similar... So I did not watch the trailers. I knew nothing. I, all I knew with this movie is Ren Goku is cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're on a train. And it's the villain that we met at the end of... In episode 26. Yeah. You know? That's all I knew. Um, so I didn't even know they were going to do the dream thing. And when I saw, when it started, I definitely had that reaction of, oh, I've seen this a million times, right? And like uh, Tanjiro's with his family and all that. But I think the movie pretty quickly cues you in that it's not just that. And I think part of that is that, like, they actually don't spend too much time on that. And Tanjiro is the only one who actually has that, like, temptation. For Inosuke and and Zenitsu, it's a joke. And then for um, um, Rengoku, it's, it's like memory. It's like he's processing feelings. You know, it's how they give us his backstory. Um... And then when you and then but but I did, did have that same feeling. It's like okay, we got the big fights. This is really good. But it is when you get to that third act and the movie reveals what its ultimate tension is about, and all of that is cast in a new light. And that's why I enjoyed watching the movie a second time so much more because the the choice between like dream versus reality isn't really what the dream scenes are about, especially for Tanjiro, because Tanjiro isn't tempted. He is not tempted to stay in the dream as soon as he knows what reality is. He wants to go to reality. And it is hard, it is sad, but it is not a temptation for him. And what it really is, is him grappling with what you're talking about, which is the finite versus the infinite. Which is that, like, as much as I want it, family, you are not infinite, you're dead. And I have to go with the stuff that is current and present tense. And that is Tanjiro from episode one to now. He is not someone who has ever languished in his grief you know he has tried to work with it and move forward and i think this movie like really beautifully actualizes that especially in the scene where he has to walk away from his family without looking back you know um but but that's what that's really about you know for ren goku what we're seeing is like these these meditations on this this family he has and this kind of like fraught family life um and it just brings it all together so powerfully. It, it, it is a movie that really knows what it is. And when I say it uses the three-act structure like a fucking weapon, the, the thing that good three-act structure movies do, the moment you know they get it, is the second to third act pivot. Because this is the key thing I think a lot of people don't realize about a good three-act movie, is that the thing you do in the third act is not what you are setting up for the first two exactly. It has to be a little different. So like Mad Max Fury Road is one of the most teachable examples of this because it's extremely literal. They are driving on the Fury Road to get to the green place. That is what they think they are doing. And you as a viewer predict, even though you know what 3X structure is, you predict this movie will end with them getting to the green place or something like that, yeah. right? And it doesn't. At the They do it. They get there at the end of the second act. And oh shit, the world's destroyed. There is no green place. It was all a lie. There is nothing for them here. Max suggests, well, then let's take over the Citadel. We're going to go back the way we came. And the final tension of the movie is Max and Furiosa and all the women um, going back through that gauntlet and restructuring like this society to have a new future for themselves. 
And it's only by going on that journey that they realize, and this is also where like the issues of want versus need come in, right? Um, that what they want and what they need are two different things. Um, and so that's a very teachable version of this. Uh, but so is this this movie, Mugen Train, because what you think is there's a demon on the train and we have to kill it. Like that is literally the setup of the movie. But killing the demon on the train is is not really what the movie is about. What it's about is surviving and saving lives and and doing what you can with the finite time you are given uh, and using that time responsibly for the best good, right? Yeah. And those are the big ideas that only come into play when the characters are pushed further than they thought they were going to be pushed at the outset. And so the second to third act twist of we dealt with Enmu earlier than we thought is the key. Uh, and it is a phenomenal use of it that that you feel it in your bones just because you know how how like good stories work that when they beat Enmu, as cool as that whole sequence is, and he cuts through the fucking bone in the train, which is an incredible visual, you go, okay, well, it can't possibly be over, right? And no, it not only can't possibly be over, but like the upper third moon, which yeah. if you've seen the show, you know how bad that is, comes out. And Tanjiro is bleeding to death from a stomach wound. And Rengoku's all they've got. And now he's got to go into battle. Um, it is just it is an incredibly expert use of three-act structure. Yeah, and it's just so, it's so impressive to me the way that it's very smoothly able to, again, it, it's, so it's like, it's the opposite of what I was talking about at the top of the podcast about Great Gatsby, where uh, Baz Luhrmann feels compelled to have characters just state what is happening in the movie multiple times to make it very clearly obvious to the audience in case someone didn't catch on the, like, mild subtext happening in the dialogue. Um, here, that no point does any character ever vocalize the like thematic connection between the dream stuff, the thing of like characters is wanting to escape into dreams and live a happy dream forever and all and that temptation. And then everything that Tanjiro says at the end of the movie about Rengoku, why Rengoku is better than the demons because he can't heal because when his limbs cut off they don't come back because he with all of that he's still willing to go fight you in the fucking dark of night where you have the advantage that like those two ideas are directly connected but the movie never has to tell you that it never has to have the Tanjiro then throw in a line as like just like we would never choose to escape into a dream you demon we also would not choose to run away from you <laughs> right it doesn't have to say that because you feel that everything in the movie has exists for a clear functional purpose and so when you just like your mind wanders to well why did they have the dream stuff it like blossoms immediately to your mind of like oh it does all connect it does all mean the same thing even when you know Akaza is not even there for any like explicit reason connected to anything related to the plot like he just kind of shows up um and the manga gives you the direct explanation they kind of imply a little bit about why he's there with like their direction and him focusing on Rengoku and Tanjiro the way he does and you know that Muzan wants the Demon Slayers defeated and stuff um, but it doesn't even, like, you don't even need a reason for him to be there for a plot reason. He shows up there because it's like the themes of the story need him to be there for them to be actualized and to, like, come to their, like, full point and conclusion. Um, and that's just such a smooth transition that to me is just so, so slick that you can have a character that basically, like, appears out of fucking nowhere like Akaza 
um, which in so many things would feel like an ass pull that like this character has not been set up. There has been no line of dialogue in the movie that's like establishing that there's another demon on the way. There's nothing that intimates it whatsoever. He just appears literally the fuck out of nowhere and then you just have to deal with it. And instead of it feeling like an ass pull, it feels like it is like the most compelling thing they possibly could have done for the story. Um, which goes to like Gotoge Sensei's like manga, which does the exact same thing. There is nothing that sets up Akaza being there. The way that character appears is exactly how it happens in the manga. Um, and like a much weaker movie would have felt compelled to put in a line or something or a scene earlier on to set up that this demon might be here at some point. And so they're like, no, the surprise and the impact of it is part of the point. Absolutely. And with all of that, this becomes a movie that is, this is, this is the, this is a Pyrrhic victory movie, yeah. right? If I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that Pyrrhic, word right. Pyrrhic, but Pyrrhic yes. victory. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I knew you're the English teacher who probably knows all the Greek roots. So I thought I'll ask you. Well, it's not um, a Greek root. It's, it's, there was an ancient general named Pyrrhus is where that comes from. Oh, uh, okay. Well, never mind. See, you, I'm, I'm, now I'm, you, and you probably have a pretty good idea about how well he did as a general based on what the okay. words Pyrrhic victory, the term Pyrrhic victory means. <laughs> Yes, but it's a Pyrrhic victory movie because as uh, Tanjiro very forcibly tells us, Ren Goku wins that fucking fight. He fucking wins, but he dies. And the death does not negate the victory because what Ren Goku is fighting for is th there's this line that he repeats to, uh, as, what is it, Akaza? As Akaza, yeah. Akaza. He repeats it to Akaza several times where he says, you and I clearly have different values, Right. At least that's how they translate it. Mm -hmm. He says that several times. Like, shut up. He doesn't say shut up. He's more polite. But he's like, you know, stop it. I'm not becoming a demon. You and I have very different values. And it, one of those different values is that Akaza is there to have fun and fight, basically. You know, and just kill and, and, and like, get Ren Goku over to their side or something. Or, like, just have this fun fight with Ren Goku. And Ren Goku's point is, I, I might kill you if, as part of this. That'd be great. But I'm trying to protect everyone. There's 200 people on this train, and there's two of my underlings right here. And, or he wouldn't call them underlings, but yeah. you know what I mean. His, his junior's there. And what I am doing here is fighting until the sun comes up and you are gone so we are safe. And he does that, and he wins. But in that, he dies. They don't kill Akaza. Tanjiro, I don't know what it did. Does the manga explain when he, if he gets his sword back? <laughs> because no, he throws the there's, there is a very good, you know, uh, Haganezuka, the sword maker, has to pay Tanjiro another visit. So there's a pretty good repeating joke okay. there with that. Because no, he very much does not get his sword back. Okay. I was wondering if it's like a, does he have to go into his for the forest next and like try to find it? Um, but okay. I was curious about that. But like, yeah, he loses his sword. They're all fucking, their bodies are broken. And it... It is a victory, but it doesn't feel like one. And it isn't a victory, but it does feel like one. And it's this crazy mix of emotions. And I have to say, correct me if there is a counterexample, I really struggle to think of another shonen anime movie that focuses on this kind of like... Like, I feel like even if it's a shonen anime where the story itself frequently involves this kind of thing, uh, like nice Pyrrhic victory... I don't think the movies do that. The movies are all about the big successes. Goku always wins in a Dragon Ball movie, you know? Um, Luffy always wins in a One Piece movie. He doesn't always win in the show, but in the movies, there's never kind of... Uh, One Piece Film Z does this a little bit. One Piece Film Z, which is, a, which is the best One Piece movie and is a fantastic anime film, is the closest I can think of to this. Um... But, but it's a very unique thing this, this story is doing. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is, I th 
I want to say it's the first Bleach movie. One of the Bleach movies has something that's relatively like that in the sense of, you know, it's a movie that I feel like is very self-consciously made from people who know that, like, whenever the movie had, like, the spin-off movie that's technically non-canon introduces a character, that that character will only ever be able to exist in that movie. And they kind of play with that a little bit, and that movie's actually quite good for one of those. Um, but, but, I mean, generally speaking, no. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not typically what you would get in the movie. And it's also, I think what's interesting is that while this thing is, I mean, not only is it not uncommon in Shonen, it's like a very common thing. Like you, you typically get, here's a mentor type character that must give their lives at some point in the story, um, in this kind of way, right? Like it happens in a bunch of them. Um, but this is, it happens in all Western media. Ben, Obi-Wan Kenobi has to die. There's no version of Star Wars where Obi-Wan gets to live. He's the mentor. He dies. But I feel like for this genre, this happens so much earlier than you would normally get. Yes. Like the equivalent moment of this in like Naruto happens. I mean, like a third plus into the way of the Shippuden side of Naruto. Like it's pretty deep when you get like a moment that's like this, that is this impactful and involves a character's death and stuff like that. And the kind of the way it reflects through the plot. I think there's something so compelling, and I think it speaks a lot to what Kimetsu no Yaiba is in cutting out the bullshit of the genre, is that, like, especially with the movie that can do it even better than the manga does, like, it kind of recognizes we don't have to spend fucking chapter after chapter after chapter in in multiple years of the story building up this relationship with Rengoku. If you do it well, there's no reason why you can't do it in that span of time. You don't need to, like, what I think sometimes happens for these series that are, you know, weekly manga they they end up having to milk certain plot points in order to keep it going, right? Because it's your livelihood is to keep this series ongoing if the series is popular. It is so incredibly difficult to get a serialized story, story like this to be successful and ongoing that you don't want to risk it by putting in a character that people love and then killing them off too soon and, and like moving the plot that quickly. And Kimetsu Yaiba just, like, doesn't give a fuck. They're like, no, let's just do it. Like, let's if we're going to do this story, let's just do it in a volume or two of manga and then move on to the next thing that we're trying to do. Uh, it's the same thing with the spider arc at the end of the first season, which similarly feels like the kind of story that wouldn't happen until later. Like you point out, Jonathan, it's like the thing that the tuning exams are in Naruto, which is like episode 50 plus of Naruto. Um, like, let's just do those quicker and get to that faster and deal with it more efficiently instead of fucking around with a million different side characters that don't really matter and some subplots that never really going to resolve, but keep the wheel turning. And it's so straightforward and direct and effective. And it makes it, even when it's not technically a flat, fresh sort of plot point or development, it feels very fresh as someone who has watched so much of this kind of genre this is such a refreshing way to deal with this plot type. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think another thing when you talk about serialization is it's also just hard to plan Mm -hmm. stories this well when you're doing it weekly. Right. Um, and like one of the shows that I've made multiple comparisons with Kimetsu is Full Metal Alchemist. And Full Metal Alchemist is about the exact same length as Kimetsu. It's twenty six volumes, I think. Kimetsu is twenty three, um, and it's a it's a story that published monthly um, instead of weekly, so it took longer to publish, but it's about the same length. And I think they actually both have something in common of like they're a shonen anime that feels partially compressed, and I think that compression is partially like 
they had more they like they're, they're better planned stories than a lot of these tend to be um and and like there's a similar level of like planting in chapter one that pays off in the final chapter in really direct ways that's really cool um and and Kimetsu just feels uncommonly well planned for a weekly uh, ch uh, uh story and I think the Rengoku stuff is a really good sign of that because the other thing that this inverts in like the mentor and I think what makes it so powerful compared to like other mentor death stories is that he never really got to be their mentor mm. It's it's the loss of the possibility of that that is so that's what the song Homura is so much about I feel like in some sense is like the loss of the the potential relationship you could have had with this person um, that like I think he really would have taken um, Tanjiro under his wing and I think he really would have been like a big brother figure or a father figure uh, for all those kids and they were so in love with this guy because he's the coolest fucking shit yeah you know. Um, and yet he still, in this really small amount of time he has with these three kids, he leaves this unbelievably immense impact on them. That's what the movie's about, yes. which is that finite things can leave immense impacts. Um, and, you know, the, the scene that got me is the last scene where they're all crying and saying their things and then Inosuke tries to verbalize it in his own way and he's also sobbing. Yeah. And it's like, and seeing what was left behind by this finite thing. <sighs> this is a movie that gets better the more you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's <laughs> definitely, it's a thought I had of, there's like a whole meta component of the, like the themes the movie deals with that it's like, it is, right? It actualizes what it's trying to say, not just for the world of the characters, but for us, right? That like Rengoku himself, not just in diegetically within the story, for us as viewers of the story, he's only around, again, it's not even two full volumes of manga, which is nothing, right? I right. spent like an hour last night and got through the entire stretch of manga that he appears in um, outside of like the two like scenes he's in in the very end of what is covered in season one. Uh, that's like volume six of the manga. Um, he's only in volume seven in the first half of volume eight. And yet the character leaves such an impact on the reader and the viewer that it actualizes that theme of that, like sometimes why it is meaningful and why it is important is because it is brief. Right. Um, which is also then symbolized by the fire, right? That fire, it's a, you know, it's such a classic symbol. It made me immediately think of Macbeth. Uh, Shakespeare has a line when Macbeth is musing about mortality at the end of the play, he says out, out brief candle referring to life because he knows he's going to die. Um, and that brief candle that is Rengoku, right, has such an impact. Um, it, and again, not just on the characters, but on you, the viewer, as well, um, which that's just such a, like, cool use of, and I don't know how intentional that is of, like, the, you trying to do that as Gotoge Sensei, like, it's the story, or if it's just, like, it works out that way with the methodology with which they approached storytelling in Kimetsu no Yaiba, but it's such an impactful element of it that, like, it is something that is just literally true. He is literally like making that impact on you in the real world because his appearance is so brief because he dies so early. That's what makes it impactful. Um, that's just such a cool storytelling trick. It's so good. Uh, and it makes me so excited to see what they do with all the other Hashira because this is clearly how Gotoge is theming all the characters. Cause the one we've seen the most of before this is, um, uh, what's her name? Shinobu. Yes. Um, yeah, and and she's also I think similarly themed. You've got the wind guy who is very aloof, 
um, all of this. And I'm very curious to see how they play this all with the different elements. Yeah, because um, the end of this section of the manga, the end of Volume 8, sets up uh, Tanjiro and them are going to go off with. I forget his name, but it's the one who's, he's like a ninja dude who's always talking about how like flashy things are in that scene. Yeah. Uh, that Like that guy they're going off with to like the Pleasure District, basically. Um, so yeah, so right. it clearly is setting up a, we're going to theme stories around the Hashida and probably have the main characters learn something important from each of them, where I had to guess where the story is going. Yeah. Which is, I, I love as a structure. Yeah. Not, and again, this is what's so great about Kimetsu, and, and I think this is going to be an ongoing theme as we talk about on this podcast, is there is no individual ingredient that is like unprecedented. It feels like Gotoge is someone who like has read and internalized deeply just a shit ton of shonen manga and knows all of it the good and the bad and, and is doing it not to reinvent the wheel but just to do it uncommonly well mm-hmm. um and i think like now that i'm starting to see this shape of like we're gonna it's gonna be a generational story about the hashira passing things on to the new generation again nothing inherently new there But I am very, very, very fucking excited to see every one of these characters in turn in a way that I think in another story, one, it would be happening over a thousand episodes. And two, like, I just wouldn't have that same kind of immediate enthusiasm because the first one you get isn't fucking Ren Goku. Like, Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. Holy crap. Yeah. There is also a... While we're just on our thematic kick, you know, here, and I'm sure we will get to the gushing over just all the cool shit because that's also like the the ingredient of this movie is the very high-minded smart intelligent theme stuff and then also holy shit thing go boom (laughs) you know um not thing go boom but like sword go fire yes um yes but but in terms of theme stuff i I made a tweet about this and i want to explain this um one of the main themes of the movie also is about ren goku and his like family's philosophy about what you do with the time you're given you know it was very used to quote gandalf the gray in lord of the rings Um, that if if he has these powers and he has this innate talent, that that comes with responsibility, you know. And this is not necessarily a a new theme. This is Spider Man also. Yes. With great power comes great responsibility, right? But there's a way that they do it that I found very affecting because they make it again. It's very literal. It is Rengoku is pushed to the edge of of he has these beliefs and to keep them he is going to have to die and give up his body for it, right? And he does it. And that's what makes it so powerful that that his his mom has told him, you know, like, because you, you know, you have been given strength and that means you need to protect those who aren't as strong as you. That means you have a duty to them, not because they are lesser than you, but because they are also humans and have incredible innate worth and value. And that is what he lives his life by. And uh, there are two lines in the movie that got me particularly choked up. One is Inosuke at the end saying come on let's train that broke me the other one is is and this is a planting payoff moment because rengoku's mom tells him i'm so proud that you're my son and then when he gets the sword in the neck and he knows he's dying he says i'm so proud i got to be you were my mom yes i'm tearing up saying it Mm -hmm. it is so powerful um and so it brings this full circle that he's lived out this this value and it immediately made me think of, I don't know, you know, not that this is like super relevant and new, but like, I do think there's some American stories about heroes that don't get that idea that well. There's a lot to pay lip service to it, and it's there, but as a banal thing. Yeah. 
There's some that do it really beautifully. I think Spider-Man stories in particular tend to do this really beautifully because it's there in chapter one of Spider-Man. You have to deal with great power, right? Yes. Um, but then there's something like the Brad Bird movies mm-hmm. and the Incredibles. And, and Brad Bird is a great director who I have always felt fairly uncomfortable with the themes of his movies because his movies are very, very Ayn Randian in the sense that like the, and, and to a point that I find honestly, like I wish we talked about it more as a culture because it's pretty fucked up in the Incredibles and like Incredibles 2 goes whole hog on it in a way that I was really disturbed that like mass culture didn't talk about. But the Incredibles movies are about special people. Like the line in the Incredibles one is, if everyone's special, nobody is special. And it's the whole idea of Incredibles is that there are special people and there are normal people and the special people are better and maybe they'll use their powers to save the normal people, but they won't really care and they won't really engage. And what's important is that the normal people get out of the way and let the special people be special and that normal people should not try to be special because if they do, they are upsetting the natural order. Uh, and if you think I'm overanalyzing that and you've only seen that movie as a kid, go watch it. That is explicitly the idea of that movie and like Syndrome, the character and all that. And Incredibles 2, which is only a couple years old now, goes even further on it. I mean, it's it's borders on like eugenics stuff like in those movies about like what makes someone special. And I don't think like Gotoge Sensei was sitting down and thinking about The Incredibles 2 while writing Demon Slayer. But I do think like this movie for me is like a very powerful refutation of those kinds of ideas in storytelling where it's not just, again, the lip service heroes should help people and use their power responsibly. It is because this is wrapped up in a story that, as you say, Sean, is about the like the value of being human and the worth of a finite life and the the value of the small ways humans struggle and suffer and move on and persevere despite the challenges of living a finite life. That means that if you have power to to protect and help those people, it is like it is a sacred duty. It is a it is a profound duty. It is a meaningful thing, even if you have to die for it, especially if you have to die for it. Um, and and it's just like man. I I am I'm happy that a movie with that message is making incredible amounts of money all over the world because it's a really really good humanistic message that I really really like. Yeah, and it's it's combined with also that like these characters are not like born inherently powerful, right? Like like obviously right, different right. people have different advantages in different ways, but like everybody has to train their fucking asses off to be able to do any of this, right? That's part of like Tandra's whole thing at the end when he's like uh, it's like the one of the most non-tondro moments we've seen him in of like he he's like you see him feel like experience like real despair of and it's such a powerful moment where he says you know when i feel like i've just mastered one thing i run up against another wall that feels unsurpassable and there are all these people fighting miles beyond where that wall is and i can't do anything about it will i ever be able to be like someone like ringoku and then that's where Inosuke comes in and says, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, let's yeah. go train while he's crying so much that tears are coming out through the fucking boar's head. Um, that, yeah, that I think it's really important. And it's one of the things that makes Tanjiro such a compelling protagonist is it's like it's about hard work. It's about that very, like, every day you go out and you do your thing. Like, you know, every day you you plant a tree outside and you jump over it every day and then eventually once it grows to full grown tree you can jump over the tree it's like basically a proverb in japan um and it's like that's um that's very much the philosophy the show has it's like you have to put in the work in fact it's something that 
they don't get to this part in the movie, but after this, um, it's something that Tantro talks to Rengoku's little brother because the thing that happens after this is he goes to heal at the Butterfly Manor and then he goes to Rengoku's house, talks to the brother and the father like what Rengoku told him to do. And that's how that section wraps up in the manga. And he tells the little brother, like, I was stuck trying to think of, like, what is, like, the thing that I could do? Like, what is, like, the secret move? Or, like, can I master the Hinokami Kagura and all that stuff? And, like, if I had just done that, I would have been able to save Rengoku. But he, but he says, but that's not, but I can't. That thing doesn't exist. There is no special breathing technique that allows you to go defeat the demons. Like, all I can do is pick myself up and go out and train harder and better um, for the next time this happens. And that's, like, kind of how this resolves in the manga. Um, and even when you don't have that scene in there in the movie, I feel like the idea is still expressed by them saying, let's go train. Um, and that that is like the message you basically leave off with, with our main characters. And you see that this is also like what Rengoku lived by too. Yes. There's a great moment where he's about to square off against uh, Akaza and Akaza looks at him and like uses like his demon vision or whatever and like sees through the like breathing stance he has and you get this incredible just like still image of Rengoku like honing like like in a pose mm -hmm. and and Akaza goes oh my god he's honed himself to an to an unbelievable degree you know and like that this is this is this is an aesthetic thing right this is a practice that that you do it is not a i am special and i just am you know? Yeah, you didn't come out of the womb being able to master the flame breathing technique and all that shit. Like, that is something that only comes through, like, true dedication and practice as a martial artist, right? Yeah. And so, so much of what Kimetsu is about is about potential turning into actuality, mm -hmm. you know? And and one of the beautiful things Rengoku has in his death scene is is acknowledging that potential in these three main characters and in, in if the four main characters and in Nezuko, yes. you know? And, and his belief in these people is not because I think Tanjiro right now you could go get my get revenge for me, you know. It's that you will one day, you could surpass me, you could be better. And even if you didn't, you're worth it, you know. Um, because look at how hard you're trying here, right? Yeah. God, there are so many moments at the end of this movie that just like kick you directly in the tear ducts, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, the moment where Rengoku, who again, the like one thing you saw of him in the TV show was he was one of like the most staunch proponents of executing Nezuko and Tandra, like to the point where he so openly defies the master of the banner that he just says, I don't even understand what you're saying in that we shouldn't kill them. Like that doesn't even make sense. That Like those words don't make sense to me. Um, and then ending this movie with him say, with him acknowledging Nezuko and saying he saw her fighting and bleeding to protect humans, and anybody who does that is is a proper member of the Demon Slayer Corps. And it's like if that doesn't hit you right in the heart, I don't know what will. Yeah, that's one of those like, that's one of those moments that you definitely need the show for because yeah. that payoff is unreal. Yeah. Oh my god, it's it's so good. Yeah. Um, and. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's just, it's compounding. It, it really is like those last like 15 minutes, once, once Akaza deals the death blow, it is just like this, this cascading wave of payoff emotions. It is Rengoku's like final flash to his mother, the mother coming out as a ghost to like greet him into the afterlife, the way he's like posed in death with like his body kind of slumped over or his head slumped over, but his body is still like on the ground, like in the position. Um, and, and then Tanjiro's speech into the forest, yeah. just yelling into the void, essentially, but also saying something very profound, everyone crying and expressing it in their own way, and Inosuke being 
Inos- I love Inosuke in this movie, yeah. Sean. Inosuke steals the fucking show if Rengoku weren't there. Uh, but like Inosuke saying really, really wise things actually to them. And he's right. But he's also crying because he's human and he's not. And no one's infallible. And like it's also okay to grieve, right? Yeah. Um, and it is very necessary. Um, On to... And then going around and, and you have the crow going to all of the different Hashira and they all react and you tie it back around to the master of the manor who we saw at, at the beginning of the movie and this whole circular thing they do there. Oh, it's amazing. I actually want to talk about that. So you said that the scene, the like prologue scene where you have the master walking through the graveyard and talking about all of his children, all of the demon slayers who have died under his watch. Um, and he has his line about like, but but this is what they don't understand about humans. Um, and it is very clearly our little thesis statement for the movie, right? Yes. Uh, that's not in the manga, you yeah, said? Yeah, that's not in the manga. So, yeah, so that's, I don't know, there might be an equivalent scene that happens later. Like, I did, in the section of the manga I read, I did get to the scene that they fill in Kano's backstory that I said that they didn't have that in the section from season one. It's basically like an extra chapter that's added in at the end of volume seven, kind of at the end of like, here's a side story that tells you how, where she came from. Um, so that, that might be, they might pull some stuff from that scene from somewhere later in the manga, but no, the, like where that happens, because actually a lot of the setup is slightly different. I think they make a smart choice. I don't think I talked about this in the last episode at the end of season one, Right, um, Tanjiro, uh, Zenitsu, and Inosuke all get a message from their crow of go to the Mugen train, join Rengoku, there's a demon there, you're on a mission. That's slightly different than what happens in the manga. In the manga, Shinobu tells Tanjiro all the stuff about, like, well, I don't know what fire breathing is, Hinokokyu, um, which the way that's said in Japanese is more important than you would think. And I have no idea how the fuck the localization team is going to handle the very beginning of season two because there's a like Japanese pun stuff that happens that is like thematically very significant uh, that I don't know how they'll deal with. But there's a reason why they don't call it fire breathing; they call it flame breathing. Go talk to Rengoku; he might know more about it. And Tanjiro and Zenitsu and Nosuke leave, and they're going to the train not specifically because they know for sure that Rengoku is there and they have not been given a mission. They're going out because it's like, well, so we've healed; it's time to leave let's go and then they run into Rengoku and then it starts um which in the manga that plays fine like you don't need a reason for them to have to specifically go to the Mugen train um here they they adjust that slightly I think to give season one a more definitive ending so they adjust the opening of the movie ever so slightly to sort of accommodate that they are technically there to specifically meet Rengoku and specifically they already know that there's some kind of demon bullshit happening um but other than that, yes, the scene with the master of the manor in the graveyard, that is not in the manga, but the scene at the end where he is the last person to get the raven and he says the line about that he's not going to be sad because he's not long for this world and when he goes to the other world, he'll meet Rengoku and all of his other children that have given them their lives. That scene is in there and so they basically took that setting and added a scene at the beginning to kind of set it up and give it that circular structure because the people who made this movie are very good at making movies. Yeah, they're very fucking good at it because it's a great. It's that honestly, I knew we were in. I mean, I would. I knew we were in good hands because I'd seen the TV show, but I really knew we were in good hands when I saw that scene at the beginning of this movie because it's just such a good opening. It is such a, it's such a quiet, beautiful, stark moment um, that gets you that gets you thinking. It plants an idea in your head, and then that idea is there for the rest of the film. It gives you a lens to read the movie. And, and uh, especially in like, you know, big like pop blockbuster kind of space, it's so good to do that for your audience and tell and, and be a little direct, right? And say, 
here's what you should be thinking about as you're watching this this fun big action movie, you know, um, which is more than just a fun big action movie. You come to learn over the course of it. Yeah, and just the imagery because that because you don't see like the scope of the cemetery as much in the manga because it's just basically one page that you see at the end of that sequence. Um, so it's like at this opening scene where you get to see like, oh, this is. I love the idea of here's this massive graveyard that just like stretches on further than the frame can contain. Like you never see the full extent of it, but you get some like big pulled out wide shots where you see it's just filled with graves of all the people throughout the past hundreds of years, however long demon like Muzan has been around who have died in the service of the demon slayer core. Um, it's a very potent imagery that again, it like then sets up that third act twist. You have that imagery sitting in the back of your head about graves and specifically the graves of the people fighting demons. And then the movie ends with, Rengoku is going to be one of the people in one of the graves uh, in the future. Yeah. So, oh, it's so good. The animation there too. Uh, the background art uh-huh. is great in the show. It's so good in this movie that I don't know if you had this reaction, Sean, but the first shot is mm-hmm. like a low angle up on the trees into the sky, mountains in the background. I thought for a second it was live action. Yeah, I, it is I so had a sp- ludicrously detailed. Yeah, I had like a split moment of like, did I in the wrong fucking theater? Like, yeah, it is. It is such a great. Shot. And it's very funny because it is because that whole sequence looks so good, particularly the background. And then they cut to the very end of season one and they just reuse some of that animation. And it's like, oh, right. Like it gives you this actually kind of useful comparison point of the TV show, you know, looks great because it's a great looking TV show. It's UFO table. Of course it is. But like, but this is movie UFO table. So it's like just getting the contrast directed like, well, it looks good in the TV show version. And then you immediately get to, and now here's a shot on the train that is made for the movie. It's like, oh my God, yeah, this looks very nice. The backgrounds, as you say, in particular are like strikingly good. Can we talk about the animation then? Yeah. It's unreal. Uh And... You know, there's all the big moments that we could talk about because there's obviously there's big moments and they're incredible and they're out of this world, right? But I just, especially on my second viewing, because on my second viewing, I actually because I bought the ticket late, I was in the very front row, like craning my neck, um, and so I was right up on the screen, and and it had a brighter bulb in the projector and everything. And what struck me through this whole movie more than anything else, the character animation is unreal how good it is it is because it was already the character animation is like one of the highlights of the tv show and we've talked about last week like how well it imitates the gotoge's manga art style and keeps a lot of those manga flourishes in the in the anime but like the number of frames of animation on every movement a character makes in this movie and i'm not talking about the big sword slashes i mean talking walking they're like cape fluttering in the background. It is like, it is a little, it's uncanny, honestly, like especially having like watched the TV show and there's nothing wrong at all with the TV show. They're not cutting corners here, you know, much at all in that show, but it's just like the level of care and that like nothing looks remotely sloppy at or, or any shortcut shortcuts taken. It is like every pose, every keyframe, every character's facial expression uh, like so much of why Ren Goku reads so strongly in this movie, like the performance, yes, but also like the performance by the animators is just out of this world good. All of the characters, like the the character animation, which is something I think we uh, just generally is 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 can be a hard thing to talk about in animation, um, but it is it is out of this world good, and I and I think how much is conveyed 
by all of the just just the basics of the keyframes and the in between and the character poses and the number of frames and all of that. Uh, it it is incredibly robust, great, thoughtful, artistic animation. Yeah, I had very much the same reaction of of like you know the action scenes are fantastic, but I don't think like the jump is as dramatic as like you know if you look at the action sequence at the end of episode nineteen of the TV show, it's not that far away from like the best stuff they do in the movie. Um, but like what makes the biggest difference is is in those little character moments in the fact that like it's kind of everything gets that level of polish and it's not just the couple of like really big character moments because you know. The Kimetsu no Yaiba is one of like the best animated productions. It might be the best animated TV production I've ever seen, at least like for like an anime, um, uh, and like that art style that is like that kind of level of like complex. Um, but like inevitably for a TV show, you're going to find places to cut corners because you have to. You know, they still made 26 episodes of 22 minutes of an episode over the course of half of a year. Like you can't do that without finding ways to save money and save time. Um, and so the things that get cut are always little dialogue sequences and stuff like that. Meaning, and what I mean by get cut, I mean, should uh, more specifically, it's that's when you get the, here is an image that is basically more or less a still frame other than a character's mouth is moving. And then they might move a couple frames a little bit, shift their weight a little bit, move the eyes a little bit. But like the whole frame itself is not shifting in any meaningful way or the whole character isn't. They find we, okay, we can get away with only animating these couple of pieces of the frame saves a lot of time, right? Um, and that's fine. Like, it works fine for a TV show. But for a movie, when you have here, we've got like a whole year plus to make one two-hour thing. We can take that level of care to every single scene. And so you avoid that problem. And yes, that's where you get the character acting through the animation, like the physical acting of the characters, particularly the facial expressions, which are so important. It's like one of the most striking things about Kotoke Sensei's style um, is, you know, their art, as I said last time, is a little bit rough around the edges in a lot of places, but those big panels that focus on a character's faces when big moments happen are so important. And being able to have those not be basically still frames, which is what the TV show mostly did, instead of have those be full animated sequences. And the best example of it is Rengoku's death scene, where you have, like, the big money shot of him with the big smile on his face that is basically the moment he dies, but he's, you know, his face is covered in blood, but he has this smile of, you know, having seen his mother's ghost who like approves of him as he goes to the other world. Um, but they add in so much around that, like before that building up to that smile. And then afterwards, as he starts to slump a little bit, as he's finally passed, um, that stuff that, you know, the manga can't do because it's a manga, it's not animated. So you just get that one big smile and that big expression and they find ways in all those big important scenes and a lot of them with Tanjiro as well, who has such great facial um, acting, basically they do through the animation of building up to those really iconic panels from the original work. And then how do you fall away from those and add so much detail and so many frames and so much care to fill out that full range of emotions rather than just here's the one big shot from the manga. Let's replicate that as much as we can, add a little bit of moving elements in the frame, and then we need to move on because we've still got 20 more minutes to animate for this episode and we've got like two weeks left to, before it airs, right? Um, that level of care and thought and detail into those moments uh, I found incredibly striking. Yeah, I mean, this is much more like watching a... There are moments of character animation in this that, that made me think of like a Ghibli movie mm -hmm. where 
you know, what is what is one of the things that sets Ghibli apart? Well, it's the time and money they spend on very talented animators sitting down and, you know, pouring over these images. And, and every little moment is getting all this, like, love and care and attention because you have the time and money to focus on it. Um, in a TV show, that's generally the kind of stuff you don't have the time and money for. Um, and seeing it here, especially, like, Tanjiro, I think, is what struck me most throughout the movie because we've spent so much time looking at him on the show, and he's really well animated on the show. But just seeing that extra level of how much he comes to life as a character with you know, a talented animator sitting down and sketching out every movement in his, like, in his thought process, in his brain and all that, like, and you add that to the vocal performance that is doing a lot of that heavy lifting for us already, and it just, it makes that character even richer, you know, yeah. than he would have been otherwise. Like, all the scenes in the dream, and, and, like, him reacting to things around him and his family, and the scene where he has to walk away from his family in the snow and, like, insist that he can't look back. It's just moments like that that just really get you on that level of this is phenomenal character animation. Um, there's one cut in particular in this movie uh, that is like a mix. It's it's in an action scene, but it is also just a great character moment. It's it's at the beginning when Rengoku, I think this is in all the trailers, when Rengoku kind of goes into action and he stands up and takes out his sword and his, his whole body and like aura kind of puffs up yes. and he has this smile that comes up. That cut, both times I watched the movie, my jaw dropped. Like, conceptually it's nothing special but it is like the quality of the animation and the number of frames and how striking an image it is it like directly gave me flashes to various ghibli movies like there's a scene in howl that has a similar effect um and stuff like that where it's like jesus this is a fucking movie i want the gif of this just to look at this fucking cut oh my god and there's a million of them in this yeah movie. one of my favorites especially like contrasting it with the manga panel it's like fun to see where they fill in like gaps um i love the moment um there's a couple things here like, so the moment when he wakes up when rengoku wakes up um and then he does like that big technique that like shakes the whole train one thing that's fun is i, I like the, the contrast of how the manga does it versus the movie i think they both do that scene well for their formats is the anime you know you just see the whole thing and he does one of his big like hono no kyoku whatever kind of like big attack and he, the whole train shakes in the manga, you see him wake up, and then it just is a panel of the train just shaking violently, and then it's a panel of Tanjiro <laughs> going, what the fuck just happened? And it's like a good contrast of that works really well for the manga. It's better to see him do the move in the anime and like seeing that difference. Um, but then after that moment, Rengoku just like appears out of nowhere right in front of Tanjiro, takes control of the situation, tells Tanjiro everything. Uh, and I love that just from the character's perspective of you think that Tanjiro is going to go fill in Rengoku about like what the scenario is because he's been awake for like 15 minutes or something and Rengoku just woke up. Instead, Rengoku has a better understanding of what's going on than Tanjiro does, immediately gives him all these orders and then just zooms away to the other side of the train in like a trail of fire. Um, and the way that they animate that is so infectious like you can't you can't ha help but have a smile on your face seeing this character um and you see like up to that point he's either been a joke or you've only seen him in dream sequences so you haven't seen him like be the proper demon slayer like hashida that he is um and so seeing him just take control in that moment and then zoom away faster than your eye can see it's the first time kimetsu has done that shonen cliche of like my eyes can't even follow him um and that's the moment they choose to use that line for um the first time it's like a you know it's a like a christening of a shonen series of whenever when is the first time you get to the point where a character says 
he's moving so fast my eyes can't even follow him. And I love that that's where they do it here is Rengoku like almost gleefully jumping around and like giving orders and commanding all this stuff. And then Tanjiro goes up on top of the train is about to tell Inosuke what Rengoku just told him. And Inosuke's like, I know that guy already just told me. Like, when the fuck did he even get to do that? Uh, like that moment and like so much of the character animation and the thoughtfulness that goes into how you're like kind of reintroduced to Rengoku in his element here in the middle of a crisis so powerful and like takes advantage of the framework that the manga gives you with the dialogue and all that so well uh, absolutely i love that whole analysis the entire way they visualize rengoku's powers in this movie are so cool because you get your first bit of action very early in the movie when they fight the the first two little demons which i was unclear is that supposed to be also in the dream. That's a dream, yeah. That's not real. Yeah, so that's okay. the first dream. I think that's a little bit more explicitly clear in the manga, but yes, as soon as the first ticket is clipped, they fall asleep. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought, especially on a second viewing. Um, but they have those two demons they fight first, and I love the way they there's this there's this one cut where Rengoku like gets his sword out and starts like the flame technique, and they cut to black and do this like sweeping shot over like all these lanterns, like lighting. Yes. And then he cuts like through all of that and it like lights up the whole frame. Um, oh my God, it's so cool. You get to the end of that and that's where um, Inosuke and Zenitsu and Tanjiro all go like, please be our be our Anaki. They're using the word Anaki. Yes. And it's so funny. And like, Anaki's Rengoku. And he's like, yes, I will teach you. And it's very funny. But like also you in the audience are doing the exact same thing. Yes, yeah, no, that's a great moment. And that's one where the movie, so in the manga, he only fights one demon and they add in that second one there, which I think is a good choice to give you like a little bit more action at the beginning of the movie and it does accentuate then yes you have um all the characters and i love these moments where they get deformed because you have a similar thing in zenitsu and then inosuke's dream in particular where you have these like weird other versions of the characters you get to see um that like it's where the writing comes across really well that they just speak totally differently and you get the voice actors get to have so much fun just being like Aniki, come train me and they all like speak with different gobi which is like the like little thing you put at the end of a Japanese sentence that if you're like kind of in a cartoonish way you can make it like a bunch of different things to convey different things about the character um and so they all have different kind of gobi they use um yeah and then let's talk about it because it's very similar the Inosuke dream sequence that has a similar thing where they deform all the characters <laughs> um and it's so great particularly Tanjiro who is a like um Tanuki basically or like a Japanese raccoon dog um, and, and, and in Inosuke's vision, that's what he is. And he's like, like, you know, he's minion number one, basically. And, uh, he ends all of his sentences with the word pwn, um, which is a, like the sound of a, that a, like a cartoonist sound that a Tanuki makes. And then you get a little like card that is the way the manga does it. The anime just does it as well. That just says Ponjiro, which is his name as little Tanuki guy. <laughs> Ponjiro is so great. And it's so <laughs> fucking funny. Uh, and then, uh, Zenitsu is a mouse and he's Chuitsu because Chu is the sound that a mouse makes like Pikachu. Um, and yes, like all that shit. And then you have the little rabbit Nezuko that is adorable and is minion number three. And he gives her a really, really sparkly, shiny uh, acorn and she's very happy about it. And she goes and joins him on the cave expedition squad. And it's the best fucking shit in the world. It's so, I, oh my God. Inosuke in this movie, every single second I love and his cave expedition squad is so good. I have to wonder if we went to Japan right now, Sean, how much Ponjiro merchandise could we find? I mean, there has to be, right? Yeah, it's such a good, funny, like fake, weird mascot version of Tanjiro. It's so <laughs> hilarious to me. 
And I love that. So in Zenitsu's dream, he's all he's just completely do- doting on Nezuko and like going around a peach farm with her. Um, but I also like that Inosuke also is like doting on Nezuko. Like she's the one who like gets to be his like chief minion, and yeah. he gets she gets the sparkly acorn and all that. Um, it's very funny. Uh, Inosuke in his own way doting on Nezuko. Um, Every moment Inosuke in this movie is so great. They talking about character animation. Obviously, his face is covered, but they do they get to do a little more with the mask. But also, just his body language is just so great. Mm-hmm. I love at the beginning when he's you know jumping out the window because he wants to race the train, <laughs> <laughs> and Zenitsu's having to pull him back in. Or the moment that I was surprised that my theater didn't like burst into applause was when he just jumps through the roof of the train. They're like, go wake up, everyone. And then he's like, I have to go find them. And then Inosuke just punches through the train and comes up on top. And then he just fucking owns the fight with Enmu. Oh, my God. Inosuke is the MVP there. Uh, And then his scene at the end, everything. Inosuke, I love Inosuke so much. I also... Correct me if I'm wrong, it looked like they did his swords a little more manga accurate in this, where the chips are more uneven and it's like more like gnarly and fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a it's a kind of a mix of they have a little bit more of the more uniform, like kind of buzzsaw pattern thing that he's got in the anime, but they do find spaces to make them look a little bit more just like yeah, these like really fucked up. You, like he took a rock and hit it. Yes, over what a sword would actually look like if you took a rock to to its bladed edge. Um, yes. So yeah, I love. I do love that. Like in this whole movie, you never see him without the boar head on. Um, he he yeah. has the boar head on for the entire two hour long runtime. Um, yes, because this is definitely like of the main characters. It is like obviously Tanjiro is the main main character, um, and then Inosuke is the other one who feels like gets like primacy, and then Zenitsu and Nezuko have good stuff, but like they're you know, which is how you should do it. Like, if for a story arc that's only this long, pick a couple of characters to really focus on and then have the other ones play supporting roles. Uh, but it is very satisfying having Inosuke have this more, like, sort of primary role in the goings-on, particularly with the fight with Enmu. Um, and yeah, I really like that, in many ways, he's a lot more impressive in the fight with Enmu than Tanjiro is. Like, Tanjiro kind of has to keep up with him because once Inosuke wakes up, He's the one who figures out where the neck is because he's got his, like, beast breathing whatever technique that can, like, detect where demons are. Um, and then he, because of the boar's head, and I also, I like that it's, you get Tondra's theory of the reason why he's able to avoid Enmu's gaze and prevent going to sleep is because he has the boar's head on. But then you later get Enmu's internal monologue running through the characters and being like, oh, I should have killed that one first because they did this, this, and this. Oh, but then I should have killed that one first because they did this and this and this to me. And he gets to Inosuke, he says, it's like, but he could just sense my gaze. And I like more that it's like, it's something that Inosuke, it's not just because he had the boar head on, it's something that he could actively do because he's got, his senses are dialed up to 11. Um, and it's something that he was like actively doing as a fighter. So you get to see that's like, you know, Tanjiro's not the only one who gets to do cool stuff or, like, be the main dude in a fight. In many ways, he doesn't get to in either of the major fight scenes. Like, he's contributes, and he's important, but he's not, like, the the one who kind of decides things for in either of those major climactic battles. Yeah, but I just love... Because they, they get to do this in the Spider Forest story arc, too, where Inosuke and Tanjiro team up and do a big battle together. And I want more of that mm-hmm. in my life because it is so good. And in this one, like... 
it's so cool to see them fight together because as much as like Inosuke is, you know, an egomaniac who always wants to be in charge, they actually work together very well. And I like that Inosuke is trying to do the thing like, no, I'm the boss. But then also when Tanjiro like gives him this one suggestion, he's like, that's a great idea. You get to be my minion number one. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it's particularly it's yeah. he because he has a moment where he says like, but OK, but I'm going to be the boss of, of the team or whatever. And the Tanjiro just goes, yeah, OK, sure. Uh, and he's just like, like Tanjiro doesn't give a fuck. He's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a great in Japanese, he literally says like Wakata. Yes. Like he just is like, okay, I understand. Um, and he says it like very formally. Um, <laughs> and it's, he, he he knows he will play along with the No Escape yes. game. Um, they work together very well. Uh, and although it's not for lack of Tanjiro being a badass, because the idea of Tanjiro overcoming uh-huh. the dream thing by getting flashed, his eyes going white, and then cutting his own head off in a dream over and over and over again. That's like up there with like Doctor Who mm-hmm. Heaven Sent punching through a diamond wall of a really fucking cool dream plot device. And the part where it's the climactic fight with Enmu and he keeps falling asleep and you just get these flashes in like black and white sketch of him like cutting into his neck over and over again. Uh, that is really fucking badass. Yeah. And then he, and I love that moment where he's about to do it because he's so disoriented. And then Noska stops him and says, This is the real world, idiot. Like, don't die yeah. such a stupid fucking death um, and saves his life. Yeah. Inosuke, if only we all had a friend as good as Inosuke. Exactly. Stop us when we're about to cut our own head off. Um, yeah. Inosuke, I love him, man. He's such a great character. He is. I'm so glad he has such a big part in this movie. It made me extremely happy. Yeah. So let's run down some of the, the other characters. So we've got Zenitsu, uh, who, again, he doesn't have like a huge. Uh, role in the proceedings but some of the stuff he does is quite fun i mean i love his dream sequence with nezuko um and i love the moment where in his dream nezuko where he's like let's go over there across the river and there's like a beautiful flower over there we'll make a wreath of flowers to put on your head she goes oh across the river oh but zenitsu i don't know how to swim oh that's okay nezuko i'll put you on my back i won't let even a single toe get wet uh like that whole thing is very funny he's He's fantastic. He's very funny. He also does get a huge yes. like applause moment of of his big lightning strike where you have um, you know Nezuko kind of getting into trouble and then like the drums start on the soundtrack and it's just this flash across the train and the animation of that. Oh man, it is a cool fucking moment. Yes. Yeah, and arriving at like the pose, uh, it's it's very good. Yes, yeah, his one uh, and yeah, his one use of the his lightning breathing style uh, is very fucking sick. Um, yes, yeah. And then he just has Nezuko. a lot of good stuff at the beginning of the movie with Inosuke of like their back and forth about like, because yes. he's the only person who knows what a fucking train is. So he's like, stop, you yeah. idiot, you're going to get us arrested. Like, stop, you're going to get yourself killed. Stop, 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 stop. It's just a train. Please stop. Uh, at the end, he's got some very good stuff. Uh, I think the actor does a great work with like sober... Zenitsu at the end reacting to Rengoku's death mm-hmm. uh, and also there is a shot at one point of him trying to get Nezuko back into her crate as the sun is going up that is very fun yes. um, but Nezuko herself not in the movie a ton but it's like with every character every moment she has counts and I really love the Nezuko stuff in this I love her getting out of the box and banging her head against Tanjiro until she starts to bleed which helps wake him up and then she's burning off the ropes and then she just goes to town against the demons her little fight scene it's like less than a minute but it's a really cool fight scene with her using like her fucking sick nails to just cut all this shit up it's very good yeah yeah I particularly really like that moment where she comes out of the box and it's 
it's this little like kind of like silent um like the manga does it really well where it's like two pages with no dialogue on it at all because it's just her walking around being like what the fuck's happening Rengoku's like asleep but still choking a little girl out everyone else is asleep <laughs> Tandra's like you know having some sort of nightmare and she's like what the fuck is happening it's like wake the fuck up and then she and there's a fun thing so the the manga makes it explicit that the reason why she headbutts Tandro and then she starts bleeding from the forehead it has a little like cut in panel that with like an arrow on this like very deformed like cartoonish depiction of that sequence pointing to Tandra's forehead saying it's like hard as a fucking rock basically it's like that's why her head (laughs) bled that's something I wonder if we'll ever get like a canon explanation or if it's just a weird quirk of why is Tandra's head so fucking hard uh because it's a very funny character detail the way that he headbutts everybody um and nobody can stand up to the the Tandra headbutt not even Nezuko yes Oh, it's it's very good. Nezuko, Nezuko is great. Uh, the voice acting for Nezuko also, like, I just really appreciated like how much character is in all the little like grunts and stuff mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, which we, I think it's just because we talked about it last week, and then I was listening for it, and it's like, man, it's it's a legitimately great performance despite having almost no dialogue, which is weird but awesome. Yes, but she does. Akarihito, the voice actress, does get some dialogue. Just in yes. weird, crazy Zenitsu dream form, which I thought was very funny. Like that, like it's weirdly affecting the shot because, and you know, they play it up well with like the editing of when it's the shot that like you see them from behind and then it cuts back and you see that Nezuko actually doesn't have like the muzzle in and she just gets to talk and you're like, oh my God, it's just Nezuko. And there's a similar moment I, in Tandra's dream where you see her there and it's like she isn't demonified and it's like really quite powerful. It's really quite powerful because in Tanjiro's dream, you hold off on seeing her for most of the dream stuff. She's not around. She's out doing something else. And so it comes at a very key moment when Tanjiro sees her human form, and it is a turning point. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So should we talk about the villains? Uh, Yeah. So we've got our two villains. We've got Inmu, who's who's sort of set up to be the big bad, and then you have Akaza. Um, Inmu... Uh, played by Daisuke Hirakawa, like just fucking knocks that out of the park. It's oh, so he's good. so good. Kon Korori. Yes. The way he says that over and over again in the sing-song voice. Uh, it's it's actually, I don't want to be too much of a dick, but I did, like I said, I stepped into one of the dub screenings for like two minutes just to see, take a look at it. And it was that, it was the scene where he's trying to get um, it's where Tanjiro first cuts his head off and he's going like he's like Namuri Namuri like over and over yeah. again uh, in Japanese but in English it's it's just the, the actor like clearly it's a guy with a deeper voice trying to do a higher voice going go to sleep go to sleep and I was like this is really bad compared to the Japanese uh, because that his, him in Japanese is it's a great performance yeah that's one of those when I was reading through the manga chapters last night I couldn't help but hear the character's in that voice, like it's so the character, the character talks in such a ridiculous theatrical way, um, and the performance just so captures exactly what that character is supposed to sound like. Um, yeah, like it's just like you know, I don't like Inmu is not a, a you know he's not a d- demon that has like a lot of depth to him that I think is actually kind of appropriate compared to some of the other ones we've had. You don't get like a here's a big flashback that shows why he's a dick or whatever. Um, he's just kind of a dick. Um, but he's a dick, but you do get the death moment yes. where it's just him running through all this stuff and like an, a shocking amount of like pathos shine through, even though it is not him like reflecting on his humanity, there is a desperation to it 
that reveals like this sort of curdled thing inside this character, which was this like desire to impress and be better and like overcome and prove himself superior. Uh, and he couldn't, and he dies in anguish, and you feel bad for him in the way that you usually do when a demon dies. Yeah, in particular, there's a line, and this is where, like, I, like, I have to say, like, the more I read of the manga, and then thus of the show as well, like, the more and more impressed I am with Gotoge's dialogue writing, because it's, like, it's really, the dialogue in Japanese, I think, is really striking, because there's just some lines that characters have that, like, hit really hard. Um, and his line as he's dying, one of the first things he says is like, I haven't even done anything yet. Um, which in Japanese is like, I haven't even tried my hardest yet is what he literally says. Like he uses the word gambari there. Um, and it's like a really striking moment where it's like, you feel his frustration where he's supposed to be so powerful because he got Muzan-sama's blood, but he's jack shit, right? Like even he, um, can't surpass that wall you know, which is the thing that Tanjiro then is going to talk about, that the wall that separates him from the upper demons in the Junikizuki, which I guess they're not the Junikizuki anymore because now there's only six of them. It's just the upper six. Um, so it's just you got to change their name to the Noku Nizuki, which isn't quite as cool, or the Noku Zuki, I guess is what they'd be called. Not quite as cool sounding. But he, his frustration at not being able to surpass that and feeling like he underestimated everybody thought he had the coolest plan in the world which to be fair is a pretty cool plan i'm gonna turn myself into an evil demon train i th i can tell why he's very proud of that one because it's like that's a pretty fucking cool evil villain plan to be it's like yes. i want to be an evil demon train um and as soon as he fulfills that plan he just gets taken out like a scrub um and so yes like that moment is really effective at giving you this last moment of like brief insight into the character um while, like, I think it's appropriate that they don't do, like, here's a big flashback that they've done with a couple of demons of, like, what was the thing that happened? Like, he was a spurned author. He was a child who died, like, at a young age from illness, like the other ones we've seen. We don't get exactly that with him, and I think it's smart that they don't linger on that that much, but just give you this one moment of insight into, yeah, his sort of obsession with being better um, and the ways in which he kind of fucked up and why he died. Yeah. It's very good. Uh, so love that character. Love his whole powers and like the, the, the like hand that has the mouth with the teeth and it's all gnarly. Um, there's like this little, this is the kind of thing where I can imagine this might have been expanded on in like a TV version, but I like how it works here where it's all the people on the train are like tuberculosis patients that like that's how he's like getting them to work for him is they want to go live in their dream. That's just such a creepy, like great idea. Mm -hmm. um, I love the character who goes into uh, Tanjiro's like soul and sees this, one of my favorite moments of animation in the movie, this big, beautiful, like blue watery expanse and the, the purity of it. And on a second viewing, this actually got me a little choked up because I wasn't even looking at the subtitles. I just heard it in Japanese and understood it. But the way he says like, like, Oh, you, you, you brought me to that, this, this like star in the sky that is his soul because you knew it's what I wanted and it's like, oh my god, and he just realizes how like pure Tanjiro is, and he's moved by it. I really loved all that. Yeah, all the stuff with like the weird dream logic um, of like, oh, the thing is like the dream is like localized around a certain perimeter around the dreamer, and then anything outside of that brings you into the realm of the subconscious, where there's this core that is the representation of the subconscious that you shatter. 
Um, and yes, like all of that stuff I think is really good. Like, I like that they're efficient about it in the sense of you never, you don't dwell much on Zenitsu and Inosuke at that point. You get like a little gag that Inosuke has this like crazy demon boar in his mind's eye that is chasing them. And then Zenitsu's world is completely pitch black. And then there's this weird gaunt version of like dress all in black version of Inosuke or of, of Zenitsu that's in there with scissors um, that attacks them, which is good and creepy. Um, but the two ones you do see, Dengoku, who is like, it's like this marble tile floor with flames popping up. Um, and then him fucking like his survival instinct is so strong. He senses that something's going to happen to him and he just like instinctively reaches out, prevents her from, um, destroying the core. And then yes, Tanjiro's is the one that's really striking. This perfect, like perfect blue sky with this perfect blue like water that is so perfect that it's like a mirror um, reflecting the sky. So it's perfect. And then, you know, the, the, we talked about this last episode about season one, that one of the things that is, and I can say this is very much continues to be a very clear element of what they're doing um, with the story is Tanjiro is represented as the sun, right? Because he is, the thing that kills the demons and it's his warmth and his compassion and his kindness is ultimately the, the demon, the blade of demons destruction, the Kimes no Yaiba, right? Like that's clearly what it's building up to. And every time the story moves forward from what I've experienced, it's more and more like, yep, this is clearly like what they're doing on um, what they're building up here because his soul is represented as the sun floating above the ocean in the clear blue sky. And yes, these little sprites, um, that are like the representation of his kindness that lead this young man to the soul, um, even when just because they know that that's what he's looking for. Um, and in specifically, the manga has an expansion on that where there's, you know, this is where the Duotoga uses some of this like disembodied narration to say like specifically like some of that like kindness is like given to the boy. Um, so like when he leaves the dream, the sprite kind of stays with him in his own heart as this like metaphor for Tanjiro's kindness and compassion touches him so heavily that, that he then carries with it, that with him to, to then become a more kind, compassionate person. Um, that like whole concept, it's such a beautiful representation of who Tanjiro is as a character that when you see that that's what his soul looks like, you're like, that is absolutely perfect. Like, it's the perfect conceptualization of what makes him remarkable as a protagonist. And so that image is in the manga, yes. that basic... Because mm -hmm. I have to imagine that, like, reading that was another reason why they wanted to do this as a movie, because that's such a movie image. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, in a theater, on the big screen, especially, like, when I was sitting in the front row, eye, like, head craned up, seeing this just big blue expanse, like... It would be cool on TV, but it's a movie image, yeah. and it, it is very moving in a theater, um, and I love it. Not that it's even, like, the most complex thing to animate. It's just so beautifully done. Yeah, it's because it's, like, that big panoramic kind of vista shot, yeah, that, like, yeah. particularly plays well on a big movie theater screen. And, and the way that it, you know, because it literally, you open up into it because he cuts through, like, the membrane of the dream or whatever and then opens it up to yeah. step into the realm of Tanjiro's subconscious and that's how you're presented to it visually that yes, it's a very cinematic um, moment uh, that yes, it is. It is like, was very kind of like breathtaking when I first watched it. Yes. So then we have uh, Akaza, the, the third, uh, the a higher third. Yes. Um, who 
I assume we're going to have to get the, the point eventually where our three main characters confront the person who killed their beloved Rengoku and he will be an ongoing thing. But man, what a fucking bastard that dude is. And the battle he and Zenitsu have is one of the best animated things I've ever seen. Not Zenitsu, Rengoku. <laughs> be weird if he fought Zenitsu, but maybe eventually, not yet. Yeah, no, it's a great, like, just the moment when he appears in the smoke and, and Rengoku and Tanjiro both, like, eyes widen and they look over um and then you zoom in on the eyes and it says upper third which is just such a good shonen thing to do of like it's not even like the weakest of the upper demons it's not upper six it's upper three so he's like in the top three most powerful demons not including muzan um and that's the upper one that shows up is the upper third um and yes I, i love that like you you like get what the character is and who he is so quickly of his whole in how he fits into the scheme of the themes of the story, right? Of that he is some must be some sort of like ancient martial artist from several hundred years ago at this point who got turned into a demon specifically for this pursuit of immortality to be able to train and be his perfect ideal self for all time. Again, not something that is like a hugely original character concept. It's vaguely cell-esque. It's the like perfect like perception or the the uh, pursuit of perfection through immortality is not an uncommon character concept for shonen. Like there's a very specific Naruto character that's similar, but I think there's something here because of how well he's slotted into the themes of the story highlights that character trait and makes it more interesting and feel more original of his offer to Rengoku of like, come on, be a demon, be like me, be someone who can like, you aren't even at your physical peak yet. In a couple of years, you'll be at your peak but then after that point, you'll start to degrade. If you're like me, I've been this badass and super cool for hundreds of years. And you can cut off my arm and it comes back. You can disembowel me and I'll grow those back. Um, like, why would you ever let every all this training and everything you've done go to waste? And the way that the character just embodies that, like, counterpoint to what the what Rengoku and Tanjiro represent um, so potently... Um, it just speaks to the quality of the writing because all that character's dialogue is just pulled straight from the manga. And then also we have here uh, a favorite of the podcast in voice actors, uh, Akira Ishida, uh, most, best known recently in Weekly Suit Gundam as uh, Asuna Zala from Seed and Seed Destiny, also the main character from Persona 3 and the different manifestations of the main character that are then voiced by the same voice actor, um, as well as a lot of different things. Uh, he's in everything. Uh, but he shows yes, up. and he's very good at just shit-eating villain. In this. Yes, yeah. yeah. He just, like, you know, he just gets this really juicy third-act appearance, just fucking eats up everything he can get. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just such a striking character that is made all the more compelling by his then desperation at the end of that fight to leave, to escape the sun, um, that, like, throws all this like water on what he was on all of his bullshit as Tanjiro like very correctly identifies of like shut the fuck up like you like oh I'm mortal for all time and I'm perfect it's like you can't even walk in the sunlight you cowardly piece of shit um like that dynamic who that's just that's fucking golden like that's just such a great it's just such good writing like it's such a great concept for a character how it fits into the other characters that exist how it fits into the plot um, to give you what is one of my favorite moments in any movie I've seen in recent memory, which is Tanjiro yelling at him into the forest as he leaves, going, this like, you coward, come back here, you coward, like, fight us. 
um, because we fight you in the night where you have the advantage. We fight you even though we get tired. We bleed when we our bones break. They are broken. When our limbs are cut off, they are cut off. But we fight you anyways. So come back here, you coward, because Rengoku won. Um, like that moment. Like, I don't know how you're not crying in the theater at that moment of like just how powerful that is. It's so powerful. And that character is just such a great literalization of all these ideas. Yes. And and I also love the idea that I think he even calls out, like, at the beginning, he's killed other Hashira. This yes. is not the first time this guy has come around and killed a Hashira. This is another day for him. And and part of what is so powerful is that, like, Tanjiro gets him to bleed metaphorically with that speech, right? Yes. And you can even see it on his face, like this fucking kid. Because this is, in just the events that happen... Not something new to this guy, right? But it is in how Rengoku and then Tanjiro frame it to him that that you see that this is the, the Pyrrhic victory of it all, right? Yeah. Um, that he wins, but he loses, and they lost, but they won. Um, it is so good. I love the the visual design and the way like that fight is so focused on like Rengoku cutting through his arms and cutting his arms off over and over again, and they just keep snapping back. It's like fucking like Boo in Dragon yeah. Ball, except if Boo were filled with blood, which would make that much more disturbing, yeah. and it is more disturbing. But like literally, like the first move of the fight is he goes for Tanjiro on the ground, and Rengoku just cuts up through his arm, and then it comes back together like fucking jelly. And it is such a great literalization of that idea that Tanjiro later calls out of like our limbs don't grow back you know we don't survive cuts we bleed we die our bones break and he is just he's fucking he's putty you know in this fight um, uh, until you know uh, Zen, uh, 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 Rengoku does get the sword halfway through his neck which is pretty fucking great yeah no and it, it, it's specifically like I think it's sort of implied and I think the manga makes this a little bit more explicit although they lose out on moments that the anime has to do this of like the main reason why Rengoku loses is just because he gets tired, right? Is he gets tired because he can't fight at that level forever. Um, because I'm, so the manga, the way they depict it, that whole kind of middle section of the fight before Rengoku unleashes the, the Ogi or the secret technique of the flame breathing style or whatever. Um, that whole section where Rengoku's eye gets like crushed and he gets like punched in the stomach and like where he takes those injuries in the manga that basically all happens off page because it like the one chapter ends with their like big exchange between the two of them Rengoku's clearly exhausted and then at the beginning of the next chapter it's jumped forward into the fight where you, it's clear that they've been fighting more or less a stalemate but Rengoku has accrued injuries, so he's bleeding, his eyes hurt, like all that has happened in between chapters, which works well for the manga. But there's something about the anime, like you get this full fight, you get this grueling exchange over and over again that for Akaza keeps resetting to zero. And then for Rengoku, all of those blows take their impact on him. And the anime being able to follow you through that whole fight and see every step along the way, um, as well as then when the Ogi happens, the manga, it's all from Tantra's perspective, so it's obscured by smoke. When Rengoku goes in with his ultimate technique and you get just excruciating detail, he fucking carves Akaza to pieces, right? He, like, goes in and goes down, screams, pulls back up, like, goes back up through the other side of the body, and you get all these movements that still, like, it fucks Akaza up, it takes Akaza longer to recover, um, but still it's not enough to kill him, and in doing so, Rengoku's impaled like following through each beat by beat the step of that fight and how Nengoku is sort of willed down to nothing because he can't recover. 
it's so brutal, but it is such a great exploration of an expression of visually and through like movement, the themes of what they're dealing with. And it goes back to something I was saying with that comparison to like the Incredibles and the mm-hmm. Ayn Randian view of heroes and like the demons are the special ones in this story. Yeah. They're the ones who are not, they're not born, they're turned, but they are just granted these powers. There's no training they have to do. There's no, this, this is innate. They get to reset to zero, as you say, every time. Whereas, you know, Rengoku, just to make it that far into the fight, has to train an entire lifetime and withstand all of that pain. Um, and so it is, it is really putting these two, like, almost ideologies against each other, you know? Um, Oh, it's so powerful. It's so good. And yeah, the animation in that fight, there's there's the two big sections of it. Their first blows where they're going against each other and just the sheer speed of it. And I love, because this is something I think a lot of shonen anime wind up missing out on because it's easier to just do the zipping blue lines fighting each other and then go, oh my God, they're too fast for us to see. But I love that first they show us like in slow motion a big chunk of the fight and then pull out to zipping blue lines and Tanjiro going oh my god they're too fast for us to see and just the impact of that is so heavy and then the final one where he like comes at him like a big flame dragon is how they draw it and then the way he carves it all up and like the cutting and the sound effects and the and everything there is just unbelievably impactful and then there's this doesn't uh, Akaza like yell out like let out this like fucking demon death scream yeah. that like in the theater that is like one of the most like impactful moments of sound I felt in the theater in a while you just like feel it yeah because that's that moment where at the end of the fight there's this like it's such a great dynamic of this like desperate stalemate where Rengoku's impaled obviously Rengoku is going to die um like that's such a powerful moment when Tanjiro sees that and realizes. Uh, like this is it like there's no coming back from having your fucking um chest punched through the only reason why he's not dead is because the arm's still in there why Rengoku dies is because the arm dissipates after it gets far enough away from the demon um and so he's stuck and then Rengoku stabs him into the neck the demon tries to punch Rengoku Rengoku grabs the arm and they're stuck there as he's trying to get enough leverage to keep pushing through and then that's Tanjiro runs towards him Tanjiro has this that great moment where he yells to Inosuke, like, Inosuke, run! Like, for Rengoku, run! Run! Go! And they go, and that's when the demon gives that yell um, that it's clear he's been backed into a corner because he sees the sun creeping up. He, like, if Tanjiro and Inosuke could just get there, they might have been able to pin him down just long enough. Um, but he gives out that yell, rips his own arms off, and then flees into the forest. <sighs> this fucking movie show. Yeah. And then Tanjiro has the moment where he throws the sword and like it's wrapped in flame when he, well, the metaphorical yes. flame when he throws it and then it gets, and I, when he, when it like stabs, the way it like stabs the demon, I just like went under my breath like in the movie and I went, fuck. Like yeah. there was just like, there's just an impact to it. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh my God. It's so good. Yeah. It's, yeah. That whole action scene, it's just one of the best action sequences i mean including like how good the animation is but it's just like the structure of it the pacing of it the choreography of it yeah um everything that goes into staging it it's just one of like the best animated action scenes ever like it's it's so impactful it's phenomenal i agree 100 percent um okay what else should we talk about with this film before wrapping up um one thing i wanted to mention is just the music of this movie I, the score on the show is great, and we praised it. I think the score for the movie is even better. Mm. Uh, I really can't wait for them to get a proper soundtrack out. I don't think there is one yet for this movie from what I've seen. I don't think there is. Um, 
but but it is it is incredible music. Uh, I think the main theme for Rengoku is so good. It has all these like gnarly kind of vocal things that go on for different parts of it. Uh, they work in Tanjiro's song, like an instrumental version of it, especially during the scene where he is yelling into the forest. And I think that's part of what makes that scene so unbelievably powerful. Um, and this is all before you get to the closing song by Lisa Homura, which is amazing in and of itself. And I'm very glad they subtitled the song for theaters. Because often that is not done. And if you're not like following along with the meaning of that song, you're not going to be uh, punched in the tear guts over and over again. Uh, it's kind of like um, the, the closing song in uh, Persona 3, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really great movie soundtrack. I was listening to there's a there they did like some symphonic event where they I, I found this on YouTube. There was like a ten minute video of a live orchestra playing music from the movie, and I've been listening to that because it is just so good. I can't wait for a soundtrack to this movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree that like the score, and this is something I feel like in the past few weeks with Weekly Suit Gundam, we've noted this where it's true of the Zeta Gundam movies, particularly the third one. It's true of Double O Gundam, Awakening of the Trailblazers. It's true here, like taking the like work that's been done for the film score or for the TV show, getting those people together and then like looking at, okay, what are the themes and elements we're taking from the TV score? And then what's the new music we're doing? How do we apply it to a movie? There's just like, like with the animation, there's just a focus on how can we best use this music at every given moment that I think like elevates everything. Um, it's the same composers from the TV show. So it's Goshina, who's an in-house uh, composer that is on basically all the UFO table stuff. And then Kajiyota Yuki, who we talked about in Gundam Seed. Uh, and then she's also done a lot of stuff on UFO table. She kind of made a lot of like what the Fate series sounds like on TV um, by expanding on some of the music from the visual novel, as well as doing the soundtracks for Kata no Kyokai. Um, so yeah, so the, all the like weird vocal stuff and like those stuff, that stuff, that is very much a Kajiura Yuki style. Like it's very clearly, um, her working on those parts because it's, it's such like an iconic element because she also did all of the music for the three heavens feel mo uh, movies that are also just the scores for those are unbelievable. Um, so she has been doing some killer fucking work in the past four years at UFO table with these scores. Um, and, and yes, especially I think getting this instrumental version of Kamado Tanjiro's song um, that plays at the end of episode 19 and having an instrumental version that plays during his um, flashback when he realizes that, like, I need to escape and he runs away from his mother and Rokuta. And then at the end, it plays. Like, just being able to pull on this existing love for music from the TV show, just it gives you this emotional dimensionality that the TV show couldn't have because it has to build that up. But here... They get to like weaponize that familiarity that you have from, well, here is the song that plays during the ending of like the best episode of anime you've ever seen, episode 19. Let's use that again here um, during like one of the best scenes in a movie you've ever seen, which is the end of this movie. But Homura, Lisa's song at the end um, is just, I think, like a master anime song um, because it is. So she did Gurenge, the theme from the first show, as well as working with Kajiro Yuki to do the ending theme for the first season. Um, and then Homoda is a song I've been listening to a lot over the past six months because I just like her. Um, so I've listened to it a lot. Homoda means flame, by the way, for people. That's like a very clear title. Yeah, the kanji is just fire. Yes. The, the title is just the kanji fire. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's obviously it's a song made specifically for the movie. I love that like it's the only song that plays for the whole in credits. It's about five minutes long and it just the whole credits play with that song and then it just ends. And... 
I don't know about your theater, Jonathan. Nobody left the movie during Nobody, the credits. Not not one person. And I don't think yeah. because it's like everyone's waiting for an end credit scene. Because I think it was pretty clear there's not going to be an end credit scene. Like you don't no. end the movie with the circular framing and all of that if you're going to have an end credits thing at the end. It's just like there's no way you get up and walk out of the movie theater while that song is playing because it's a part of the movie. It is like a part of what it is. Because as you say, you have the lyrics and the song is very much about someone. And I think it's written both. I think it applies both to Tanjiro's relationship with Rengoku. And I think one of the things that it really works well for is it also replies to Rengoku's relationship with his mother. Because the song is about someone who has lost someone before their time and them kind of despairing over that. But then also saying that you, the title of the song, Homura, like you are going to be like the fire in my heart that I'm going to carry with me into the future. That when in through when I struggle, when I grieve when I face things I feel like I can't overcome, you will be the fire in my heart that helps me overcome it. That's like what the chorus of the song is about. And it's like, my God. I, and so again, I kind of knew Red Goku's going to fucking die in this movie because this song is sad. The lyrics of the song are sad. It's such an emotionally impactful song. And I had listened to it a bunch. So then hearing it both as Rengoku's theme in the movie in an instrumental sense that it plays a couple of times was really effective but then having it like seeing it in its full context at the end of this movie and listening to the song in that context my god is it such a perfect song for this film I made the comparison earlier but I really do think it's a Kimi no Kyoku in, in Persona yeah. 3 it's a similar effect as that of like that song just ties the whole thing together in a really profound way um, you also, Sean, tweeted out um, yesterday this video that is very has 107 million views. Last time uh -huh. I checked, of of this series where it's it's called First Take and it's Lisa singing the song to uh, just a basic piano track. Um, and I like that version even better. And and I think the only reason why you wouldn't put that in the movie is that it would be illegal because everyone would die crying. Yeah. Because it is so powerful. Like this, you should watch the whole video because at the end she like, they she stops singing and they talk for a little bit and she's just choked up like trying to like describe the song and like clearly, you know, this isn't just a gig where like she came in and like did a fun anime song. It's like, this is a really meaningful recording and it sounds like it. Yeah, no, it, it is my favorite version of the song because yeah, this is this incredibly raw version that only has piano accompaniment um and and yeah it's really powerful she has also she's done a couple of songs for that channel because she has also done one for Gurenge that is also very good i did i watched that it's so good yeah. oh my god yeah. yeah lisa is just like she's like one of the most impressive vocalists it, it like it's just her range is fucking insane um, because she's done like main theme songs for a bunch of anime um because she also she originally started working with ufo table on the fate stay night stuff um, because she did that for Unlimited Blade Works. So she's been done stuff with UFO Table a few times now, um, because I feel like they just know, it's like, man, you need someone who, like, has this incredible vocal range and can just, like, like stab your heartstrings with a musical knife. That's basically what you get Lisa for, and she nails it for this movie. Holy shit. Like, I have to imagine at this point, since they had her for the first season, they got her for the movie, it, they must just have to have her for as long as they're doing this, like as many seasons or movies or whatever they're doing, she must just have to do the theme songs for all of them. Because also both Gurenge and Homura have been some of the most successful songs in Japan in terms of sales um, of the past two years also. So it's like, they're like platinum hits, like a million, yeah, hundreds of millions of downloads and things like that. Like they are just incredible songs. 
We didn't even we didn't spend enough time talking about it last week, but as I said, Gurenge sounds like it was invented in a fucking lab yeah. to be the perfect anime opener. No, if they don't have her doing all the openings, maybe maybe you can play around with the endings. That's fine, but like she has to be the opening artist for all of these. And yeah, um, and like season one only had the one theme song for both cores, yeah. so it doesn't seem like they feel pressured to like switch them up a bunch, which is good because um, it would suck if Gurenge wasn't there for all twenty six. Um, I mean, they got yeah, way I'm more very... money off of Gurenge than they would have by doing licensing for another song for the second OP. Yes. Like, they like they were smart to just stick. They were like, we nailed it. Let's stick with it and milk this one song for all we can because it's going to make us a shit ton of money. Yeah, I hope they do that for season two. I guess we don't even know how long season two will be, but however they do it, um, I assume it'll be another 26. Um, I mean, that's a good question. How long they've done. So they're up to volume eight in the anime adaptation through one season and one movie so i can't imagine this being more than like three seasons and like one or two other movies i'm curious how they finish this whole thing up yeah me too obviously i haven't read past this in the manga so i don't know like because i'm curious to know are there other arcs that are like this that are of like a good movie length because most shonen series you wouldn't be able to do this because you wouldn't have arcs that would fit within two hour movies outside of like because most shonen series start with here's a couple of arcs that are pretty short because you don't know how long it's going to be serialized for. And then once it's clear that it's landed and it's popular, that's when you do here's the tuning exams in Naruto. Here's the Soul Society arc um, in uh, in uh, Bleach. Here's like the Red Ribbon Army in Dragon Ball. Like that's where we go. OK, like let's do the bigger ones. So it's pretty rare that you'd have something like this that you even do the movies. So I'm really curious to when I as I start reading ahead are you going to have more arcs that are like this or is it going to start moving into here are a couple of longer story arcs as would be typical. Um, but I feel like at this point in Kimetsu no Yaiba, you would expect it to have been doing the bigger arcs and it hasn't. It's been very focused tight arcs um, so far all the way through the first eight volumes. It makes me wonder, and maybe this is crazy. I wonder if they could end this thing on a movie mm-hmm. because can you imagine how oh much fucking money a Kimetsu movie would make if it were the end if it were the it was a Kimetsu no Yaiba the end and that's the movie that would I mean it would break the box office everywhere I I have an even better title for you Jonathan the last colon Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie (laughs) borrow from the best titled Naruto movie for your best titled Kimetsu no Yaiba movie Yes, um, that's that's really that should have been Avengers Endgame, the last Avengers. Yes. No, it's very important. The last Avengers, the movie. That's you have to get the Avengers whole structure the in there. <laughs> oh, Sean, this is so good. I am so happy to be talking about Kimetsu and having finally gotten in on it. And uh, you know, are we riding the hype train? Sure, this is a good train to be on. This is a hype train worth riding. Yeah, this movie is unbelievably good. Before we fully wrap this up, I feel like. We kind of have mentioned it a little bit, but I think we didn't haven't given him his full due. Hanai Naski's performance is fucking Tanjiro in this movie. Unbelievable. It, it is one of the best performances in an animated movie I have ever seen. Like they give it because this he's got such hard shit to play because like there are multiple scenes over the course of this story where Tanjiro is pushed to like really emotional extremes and really different emotional extremes. Right. Like this is you both have the angriest we have ever seen him both in the very ending with him yelling into the forest, but then also 
um, a great scene that I think is like done actually quite a bit better than the manga does it, where he's seen that vision of his family by Inmu, where they're like, you're yeah. pathetic, Tandra. Like, how could you possibly survive all that? And he just gets infuriated saying, it's like, my family would never say that. Don't you dare trample over what my family means to me. Um, and, and the way he just like snarls that line, it's so powerful. Um, and like having those moments and then also at the end of the movie, like he's, he breaks down into tears, like true tears. Like it's not a like sexy movie cry. Like he is on the ground, like sobbing his heart out because he has really lost this person. Um, and like that whole range of everything he gives, as well as having some like really funny lighter moments earlier in the movie too. Like it's just a, I think a legendary performance that is building off of was already an incredible performance in the TV show. And he pushes himself even further here in a way I would not have expected it was like even possible. I think this performance is quickly pushing itself into the annals of like shown in history yes. with like Masako Nozawa as Goku and Mayumi Tanaka as Luffy. Just the, just that range and instant iconicism. I, it's, it's, and being grounded too though in the moment where it isn't becoming a character of itself or anything. It, it's 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 like humbling to hear. It's such a great anime performance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just Hanai Natsuki, you're fucking rocking it. Like it's just like it's incredible to me, um, because it is those things where, again, especially when you read the manga, you're like, some of these lines feel like they would be hard to deliver, and he does it so naturally because it's just like the writing I think is so good. The dialogue is so well written, and it gets better as it goes. And he's got these multiple lines in this movie that to me like register partially because of his delivery, just like immediately iconic in a way that like you can you can tell that like otaku are quoting this movie to themselves because like and specifically a lot of Tanjiro's lines because they just immediately strike you as these like really iconic um, pieces of dialogue delivered so perfectly. And he then goes and plays Uno while pretending to be Seto Kaiba. I mean, yes. this go. What can't what can't this guy do, Sean? Nothing. He's he's like, uh, you know, it's an obscure thing, relatively for like an American audience. But he is like my favorite celebrity. Like he's just like, how do you have? How do you both have like this incredible lead role in the hottest property in in Japan with Kimetsu Yaiba, and also one of the most popular video game YouTube channels at the same time? It's like, how is that a thing that one human being can do both of those things? It should be impossible, and yet he does it, and it seems effortless. Also, his Twitter is very good because he just posts pictures of his cats all the time. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps it up for Demon Slayer, colon, Kimetsu no, Mai, no Yaiba, the movie, colon, Mugen Train. Still not a very elegant title in its English adaptation, but uh, a movie you should absolutely see. Uh, if, if you haven't already, it would be weird that you're at this point in the podcast. But, man, I, I love this movie. I'm probably going to have to be importing that Japanese Blu-ray so I can watch on my TV ASAP. And actually, if you're, if you're curious about it, the Japanese Blu-ray does have English subtitles. So if you want to get that, the standard version is actually not pricey by Japanese standards. Um, and you can pre-order that, and it will have your subtitles, so you'll you're good to go. Um, yeah, I, this is awesome. definitely a movie I'm going to own. Like it's like this. Yes. You you walk out of the movie theater having seen this, and you're like, you know, I don't know if I'll, it would be feasible for me to go see it in the theater again because it's like there's a little bit to do, especially with like stuff at work is picking up again because we're getting near the end of the semester. But like, there is no version of the future that does not have me owning this on Blu-ray. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Um, whatever we talk about next probably will not be this good. 
Um, what a what an awesome movie! Incredible movie, and I'm glad I've seen it because now I can finally continue reading the fucking manga. Because that was the hardest thing to do was to put that on pause for an entire week just to watch this movie. Japan Animation Station.